When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends, and welcome back. I'm Jared Halverson. This is Unshaken. And yes, we'll be studying scripture this week, as always. But before we go to the Sermon on the Mount, can we climb the mount, as in the mountain of the Lord, namely the temple? Can we go there for just a moment? Because I was just in the temple yesterday and actually ran into a few of you in the celestial room. Great conversation about the scriptures and about truth and about the way the Lord presents the truth. Because the Lord's presentation of truth has changed in the temple as of this week. And if you haven't heard, please go to the temple and learn. And you may end up learning more than you ever have before. I'll do this briefly because I want to get back to scripture as quickly as we can. But there is a difference between the endowment and the presentation of the endowment. The endowment hasn't changed at all. The endowment is a gift from God, a gift that keeps on giving because that's what endowments are. And specifically, it's a gift of power from on high. When people say, oh, I'm going to the temple so I can take out my endowments, that always rubs me the wrong way because it sounds like you're going to check out a library book. You don't take out your endowments. The technical term from scripture, I'm going to the temple to be endowed with power from on high. And that power is the gift that keeps on giving that God is offering us. And he offers it to us because we are offering ourselves to him in covenant relationship. We go to the temple and the endowment is a, a covenant relationship we are forging with God so that he can then pour out power from on high upon us. Power to do his work. Power to keep the covenants that we've made. Elder Bednar has talked about these covenants in a general conference setting. And so we can talk about them outside the temple as well. In the temple, we make covenants to obey the commandments of God. To sacrifice for him as he sacrificed for us. We make covenants to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith and repentance and baptism in the Holy Ghost. Enduring to the end in righteousness. So we can be perfected in Christ like we studied last week. Oh, it's a glorious gospel. And we make promises just like we did when we were baptized. Just like we did in pre-mortality when the plan was first presented. We're simply renewing those covenants as we grow in understanding of them. A fourth covenant we make is to covenant to keep the law of chastity. To be true to our husband or wife but also to be true in our covenant relationship with Christ. Remember last year in the Old Testament and how often covenant infidelity was used? At adultery and idolatry, and are you being faithful to God, not just faithful to your spouse? I think that's part of it as well. And then finally, the covenant to consecrate. A God who has given us all things simply asks that we give it back so we can participate with him in his work and his glory. There'll be plenty for us, don't worry. He's that generous. But that's the endowment. Then what about the presentation of the endowment? That's just the way that we couch things, frame things. I, I, forgive me for the crass analogy, but it's how we package things. You see, there's a difference between product and packaging. Packaging is just meant to preserve the product, to present the product, so that we can, so that we can enjoy the product itself. Then the packaging can go. Unless you're a little kid and you want to play with a box, right? 
But in, the, in terms of the presentation of the endowment, if the packaging ever starts to interfere with or distract from the product itself, then the packaging has to be changed. Because it's getting in its own way. It's not, it was just means all along, but it's getting in the way of the ends instead of presenting the ends in the way that it was first intended. It's interesting how much things change over time. As far as our culture, our, our understanding, even of like vocabulary words and language, and words that meant one thing in the mid-19th century when the endowment was revealed to Joseph Smith, have different connotations in the early 21st century. And so if we trip up over a word, then that word needs to change. And there have been some changes in wording in beautiful ways. But also in terms of culture, uh, in the ancient days, for example, culture was intensely symbolic. You read Isaiah, you read Revelation, you, you meet a Nicodemus, even by Nicodemus's time, even Nicodemus is confused by some of the symbolism of what Jesus is teaching. Born again? What are you talking about? And so you're going to need a little bit of extra help to peel away the layers of the symbol to be able to see what it is that it's trying to convey. And the change in presentation of the endowment recently is making the product, the endowment itself, so much more clear. It's, it's not assuming, as it perhaps did before, that we're going to understand symbolism. In some ways, it's like Matthew just assumed his audience would know Jewish things because he had a Jewish audience in mind. He didn't explain Jewish stuff because he just figured you get it, right? Whereas Luke, a Gentile writing to Gentiles, they're not going to get this stuff. So if we're going to talk about something Jewish, I better spell it out a little more clearly. And so he does. And if our culture, we moderns have such a struggle with symbolism, we prefer prose over poetry, we want it straight out. We want an instruction manual. It don't make us think too hard. Well, the Lord's still going to make us think. He's still going to make us ponder and pray and, and try to understand what he's teaching us. But he's going to give us a few more obvious hints of what this whole thing's about. The endowment is presented in a narrative, in a story. And the story is the, the creation, the fall, the atonement. It's the story arc of life. It's the plan of salvation. It's the stages of faith. It's the pillars of eternity. And that story teaches us about our return to God, which is what we need power from on high to accomplish. And so to learn creation, to learn fall, and then to hope that we understand atonement as a result and that we see the, the blank, fill in the blank, and we know the blank is Jesus. That's the way the endowment has been presented to us in the past. But unfortunately, I think too often, we've missed the main message. And it's creation, fall, fill in the blank, and we look around with a blank stare, wondering, I don't understand, when it's been Jesus reaching out to us all along. The presentation of the endowment now makes it so much more clear who's on the other end offering us power from on high. It makes it more clear that this has been pointing us to Jesus all along. And to see him more clearly in his house is a beautiful thing. I hope that this is not merely piquing your curiosity. I hope that it is inviting you into a deeper more understandable relationship with the Lord.
because he's inviting you to come into his house to do just that. Oh, there's, uh, President Nelson has invited us to come back to the temple more frequently. And I think you will get more out of your temple experiences now than perhaps you ever have in the past. As, as things are being more oh, didactic, more intentional. Are you understanding this? Ah, there's, there's power here. So please go. Uh, if you haven't been in a while, please come back. If there's anything that's keeping you from, from returning then bring forth fruits, meet for repentance, and the Lord will exchange your fruit for his, namely the fruit of the tree of life. There have always been two trees in the temple because it's the Garden of Eden. And there is a fruit of, of love and life that he offers that we've always been able to attain. But there's a fruit of knowledge as well, a tree of knowledge, technically of good and evil, but just in terms of knowledge of what the Lord is trying to teach us through the lesson of the endowment, that has often been harder to attain. And so now what is the Lord doing? He's bending the bow so that the fruit is a little more, it's within our reach. Uh, so please come and, and have an amazing experience. Ah, I, I wish we could all go together. But in the meantime, we can get, dive into scripture together. And that's a glorious blessing for us as well. Last week, we spent our time in Matthew chapter 5. And I hope it was a good experience for you. I know it was a long lesson, and I hope it was worth it, especially parts that we saw in the second half that you may not have gotten to, uh, specifically what we dealt with in terms of agreeing with thine adversary quickly. That's hard to do. And is it wise? Agree with someone you don't agree with? How's that work? We talked about it. Or going to the altar and then realizing you have something amiss with your brother, and then what do you do when first great commandment seems to come in conflict with the second great commandment? And do we, do we hold to law at the expense of love? Or do we hold to love at the expense of law? Ugh. Well, go back and listen to those parts if you didn't get a chance last week. Uh, what he taught us in that second half of, of Matthew 5 is essential for us to be able to navigate our pluralistic society with people that, that we don't always see eye to eye with. But can we feel heart to heart with instead? That might be better anyway. Well, that was Matthew chapter 5. The Lord invited us, he came down to our plane and invited us up to his mount. He taught us the Beatitudes and gave us such marvelous blessednesses uh, if we'll simply uh, follow him, follow his, his example. He taught us about being salt and he offers us his savor. He taught us about being light and he provides for us the light of the world. He, he gave us these marvelous antitheses. The law says this, but I say this. And in each case, it's as if he took the staff of Moses and turned it horizontal and then raised the bar. Okay, we're going to be better than that, higher than that, holier than that. Because Moses was working on outward action. Jesus is working on inner attribute. So we've got some digging to do, some discipleship to do. By the end of Matthew chapter 5, it was... It was all about our interpersonal relationships. It was about turning cheeks and loving enemies so that we could someday become perfect in Christ, especially within those relationships. Actually, I, there was something I, I totally spaced last week, and forgive me for that, please. I had been doing pretty well at bringing Luke in every chance that we could to round out some of the message that we get in, in Matthew. But I, I forgot to do that at the very end. Shame on me. And the way Luke describes a few of the things that we saw at the end of Matthew 5 really do add to our understanding. So if we can rewind just a touch 
see a few of those things, I think we'll have added momentum as we charge forward into Matthew 6 and 7 for this week. But go with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 6. This is the Sermon on the Plain, his version of the Sermon on the Mount. And notice verse 29 and 30. Some of it will sound familiar from our Matthew message last week. Unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. So there's the turn the other cheek that we saw. And him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Is that ringing bells as well? But do you also notice the difference? In Matthew's account, it was, hey, if they come to take your coat, uh, go ahead and give them your cloak too. Maybe it's cold out there. They need extra layers. But in this, it's not that you're just offering it. It's that they're taking it. They come to take away your cloak. Well, it looks like they want your coat too, because you're not supposed to forbid them from taking it. So that sounds like they're taking it. You get the same sense in the next line. Give to every man that asketh of thee, and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. In the Matthew version, it was just, if they ask, go ahead and give. And if they would ask, if they would borrow, don't even make them ask. Go ahead and just give it to them. But at least they wanted to ask. At least it was just borrowing. Here in Luke, they're taking it. That's not fair. That's not right. That's not just. And that's what makes this so difficult. In some ways, Matthew's version is a lower bar than Luke's. And Luke is asking us to do something that goes against our sense of justice, which is really hard. I mean, Matthew, yeah, go the extra mile. Okay, I can do that. But if they're forcing me to go that second mile, do I have to do that? Because now it's on them instead of just the goodness of my heart. Yeah, this is tricky. Are are there no boundaries here? Is this, am I supposed to just give in to anyone who tries to rob me? It's like, oh, you forgot these things too. Oh, wait a minute. That reminds me of something. You robbed me. And then I say to you, there's more you should have taken. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? This is Les Miserables. This is that marvelous bishop at the beginning of the book that when Jean Valjean comes and steals his silverware and then gets caught in the act, rather than pressing for mortal justice, the bishop offers divine mercy and goes above and beyond to say, you forgot to take the candlesticks that I gave you, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, that I'm giving you now. Now, that in some ways, if what, Luke, if what Jesus is giving us in Luke's account is meant to like not sit well with us, because there's this underlying sense of justice, that's the Javert in all of us, this underlying sense of justice that that's not right. He stole the first, now he's trying to steal the second? No. And I'm supposed to just turn that cheek? I'm supposed to give, not press charges? That's not fair. You're right. It's not fairness that I'm asking for. It's a fullness of the goodness of God. You see, here's the thing. What justice demands is reciprocity. It's, that's back to the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's in the negative way. They hurt me, I get to hurt them. But what if it's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth in a positive? What if it's a sweet tooth for a sweet tooth? How's that? Because we do that all the time. And somebody brought us treats. And what do we automatically feel? a desire to reciprocate. And they brought me treats, I want to bring them them treats, because then we're back to even relationships. What's amazing about the Lord is He's not asking for even relationships. We'll never be even with Him. 
And so this gift of grace, this endowment of power, what he pours down upon us will never catch up. And he doesn't expect us to. We don't earn salvation by working off our debt. We accept the gift of God that he's given us. And it makes us want to just serve him and serve others, not as payback, but as appreciation, as love, not just duty. And what's interesting about what the Lord is saying here, and he'll say it in so many different ways in both Matthew and in Luke, forget reciprocity and let's go for generosity. In fact, let's make things uneven in their favor, because guess what? This justice bone that makes it hard for you to give is going to make it hard for them to receive. It's so interesting. The Lord's playing on both our strengths and our weaknesses here. Because if you've given me more than I deserve, I know that there's something out of whack there, out of balance. And I want to reciprocate. In fact, maybe even I want to go beyond reciprocity to a generosity of my own. And then all of a sudden it becomes like an arms race in a good way. Uh, that you did more for me than I deserved. I want to do more for you than you deserve. And on and up, we keep climbing. That's what the Lord's after. Arms race in our day is for mutually assured destruction. Oh, an attribute race in the Lord's way is for mutually assured discipleship. Mutually assured giving in God in beautiful ways. Think about the anti-Nephi-Lehi's in the Book of Mormon that turned the other cheek in the ultimate example. And what did it do? It, it, it worked upon the internal justice, even of these Lamanites, as they realized they were on the higher moral ground. And I need to climb to, to get there. And they did. It's so interesting what happens when we turn cheeks when we give more than is asked, when we forgive, even in unfairness, when we, when we allow mercy to intercede instead of justice, and then we let things, we let them, we let the Spirit of God and the light of Christ within them work inside until they want to make their own changes. It's part of the glory of, of anonymous service which we're going to see as soon as we turn to Matthew chapter 6. Because what does anonymous service do? The anonymity of it all cancels out the possibility of mere reciprocity. I actually taught this once in a seminary class about giving service to others and not letting people know because people will want to pay you back. And if they know who did it, then they can. I know exactly who offered me that and I can return the favor. But when it's anonymous, you don't know who to return the favor to because you don't know who gave you the favor in the first place. So what do you do? You look around and all of a sudden, everyone is a potential benefactor. Isn't that the beauty of it? So don't ever pay me back. No, pay it forward. And then have them pay it forward and then pay it forward. And all of a sudden, this is perpetual motion. <laughs> this is perpetual mercy. Instead of, okay, I paid them back and now I'm done and I'm off the hook and I can go back to being the natural man, man the natural me. I taught this once in a seminary class, and by the next day, somebody, a bunch of students, I don't know who, had found out where I lived, and they came to my house and did some amazing acts of service without me knowing. And I came back the next day, and I was like, you guys, 
I didn't mean me. Don't do anonymous service to me. I'm dying to know who did that. So I can thank you and, and love you. But thanks for making me instead want to thank all of you and love all of you. Because now that desire on my part has been multiplied. And that's the beauty of what the Lord is asking of us here. He gets so much out of his acts of goodness. And he wants that to be multiplied for us as well. This is not a mere quid pro quo, a tit for tat. You do this for me, I'll do that for you. And you scratch my back and then I'll scratch yours. No, not reciprocity. It's generosity. And it's one that is multiplied in magnificent ways. It's interesting because that's how the book of Luke leads into Luke's version of the, good, of the golden rule. Because what he's asking for, it is golden. It's not just the silver for Jean Valjean. This is the gold of God. And so this golden rule, look at Luke 6, verse 31. Here's his version of it. And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. It's not the mere mosaic version of it, of do to others what they did to you. No, that's merely terrestrial. Celestial, do to them what you would have them do to you. And whether or not they actually do it is beside the point. God will take care of that because God will take care of you. We'll see that at the end of Matthew 6 as well. You see how 5 is leading into 6? It's this beautiful crescendo. One other thing from Luke. You remember last week in Matthew when we talked about parental publicanism? Or just publicanism in general in terms of tit for tat. Uh, you were nice to me, so I'll be nice to you. It's all part of the same conversation. And here's Luke's version of it. Chapter 6, verse 32 to 34. For if ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. If ye do good to them that do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. Now, again, I smile here because in Luke's account, it's just sinners. In Matthew's account, it's publican. Again, Luke's audience wouldn't probably know what a publican was, but <laughs> Matthew's audience certainly did. And Matthew himself certainly did, since he was a publican. He's like, yeah, even I could do that in my old life. What Jesus is asking me to do in my new life, man, requires a lot new life in him to be able to accomplish it. But here, just sinners. Even sinners can do that. He then adds, and if ye lend to them of whom ye hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much back. So same kind of idea. Uh, don't just lend in hopes of not just re getting the, the interest, but also now they owe me something and, and I can, I'm sure I can borrow from them later on. No, just cast your bread upon the waters. Leave it in God's hand. He'll return it to you after many days. In fact, you don't even usually have to wait that long. And so Luke's finale for this, verse 35 and 36, but love ye your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again. Same idea. I'm not keeping score. I'm not calling in a favor. You're not in my debt, and I'm going to call the debt at some point. No, I don't have an angle here. I'm just trying to be like Jesus, and I'll leave it in his hands and in yours. If we do it that way, what's the promise? Your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. I think we're familiar enough with Matthew 5 that we can hear the differences from Luke 6. 
And so here when he says, if you'll do this, you'll be the children of the highest. That's what Matthew was saying. But if, if you'll do this, if you'll love your enemies, that's what makes you a child of God. Remember, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Same idea. This is like father like son, like mother like daughter. And if we are the children of heavenly parents, then we ought to, to treat our spiritual siblings as such. We ought to treat them the way our parents would treat them and the way our parents have treated us with such undeserved generosity. It just makes me want to love them back even more. The idea of the sun shining and the rain falling on the just and the unjust, same thing here. It's not just the just and unjust, it's on the unthankful. And even beyond that, it's on the evil. And our heavenly parents are kind even to those. And then the ending, which I really hope becomes obvious what, he's, what, what Matthew verse is being described here. Be therefore blank as your father also is blank. If I put that on the board, I think 99 out of 100 students would say, oh, perfect, I know that verse. Be therefore perfect as your father also is perfect. Like, good, you Matthaeans. But do we not have any Lucans here? Because what's Luke's version of that? It's not a generalized perfection. It's a very specific perfection in your mercy. Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. This goes back to that other beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Again, growing up in God, being perfect as He is perfect, to be merciful as He is merciful, that's what we're after here. And so to see the Lord's gentle invitations for us to treat one another in more kindness. There's so many areas of perfection I am so far beneath. But one thing I can really work on is to become more merciful to other people. That's one huge step towards perfection in Christ. And speaking of perfection in Christ, this grand finale of Matthew 5, as we saw last week with the help of President Nelson and that beautiful old conference talk, Perfection Pending, the word was teleos, the, the off in the distance, as in te telescope or telephone, the, tele the teleos of our goal, the telos, the end. It's not that we have achieved some kind of sinlessness in this life, but no, we've established our trajectory and built our momentum so that way off in the distance, off in the eternities, that's what we'll eventually attain. This is a God who's teaching his toddlers to walk by always staying close enough to catch us when we fall, but gradually backpedaling so that we can learn to come unto him. We'll never fully catch up. We'll certainly never leapfrog our Lord. But for him to invite us to keep climbing, that's what this was all about. And so keep growing up in God. Keep coming unto Christ. What we see at the end of that telescope are his arms outstretched. What we hear from that distant telephone is his gentle invitation. And we can come. Now you'd think that the story could end there. The sermon could end there. What a great climax. We're now perfect in Christ. But not so fast, because we still have two more chapters to study. And that's what this week is for. Chapter 6, come, but again, why do we need more if I've already been perfected in Christ? Well, okay, that's in your actions. Hopefully it's in your attitudes. But I also worry, is there still a few more steps on Jacob's ladder to climb? 
Because here's what I see in chapter 6 and chapter 7. If chapter 5 has perfected you in so many ways, well, how about your motives? Have those been perfected too? Or are you now perfect and you are perfectly aware of the fact? Are you now tooting your own horn? Are you shining the light of the world on yourself so the world can see? Are you so proud of your perfection? It's like what C.S. Lewis said about humility. It's the hardest one to hold on to because as soon as you know that you're humble, you just lost it. Darn it. Uh, you need to be humble and the last to realize it. And that, I think, is what the Lord is getting at in chapter 6. So if you've perfected so much in chapter 5, let's now perfect our motives in chapter 6. And by the time you're done with chapter 6, you still have chapter 7? What's that all about? Well, now that you're perfect and, with, and for perfect purpose, how do you view people that aren't quite there yet? How do you judge or look at people that are still somewhere back in chapter 5 or chapter 6? Because if you judge them harshly, then you probably need to go back to 5 or 6 and get a refresher course. And chapter 7 is so focused on that idea of judging and giving people the benefit of the doubt and approaching them in humility and patience and kindness as they make their way through the Sermon on the Mount. It's an incredible sermon, each chapter serving a specific purpose. And so let's see those two purposes in what we'll study today. Matthew 6 begins with Jesus focusing on three specific oh, acts of discipleship that we do all the time. And maybe that's the purpose. He could have mentioned so many, but let's pick ones that you do so often that some improvement there would make a massive difference over time. Elder Irene has taught this, that if you want to make major changes, then just make a minor one in an area that you, that you do often over time. And then the cumulative effect of that improvement will be dramatic. It's similar to what Elder Dunn taught in a recent conference talk about adding 1%, just getting 1% better. But 1% multiplied over time, there's compound interest for you. Uh, there's an amazing amount of progress as a result. So he's going to talk three areas. Number one is going to be about service. He calls it alms, but same idea. What am I giving to other people? Whether that is fast offerings, whether it's humanitarian aid, whether it's magnifying my calling and just doing a good deed. What are my alms? We do that all the time. Uh, our church is a church of being called to serve. And so alms is a great one. He'll just spend about four verses on that. Next is prayer. And he'll spend like 11 verses on that one because prayer is something we do so often and seem to get so little out of. Maybe we're not quite doing it right. So let's talk about that. And then third, he's going to spend, oh, what is it? About three verses on fasting. Since that's something we do at least once a month as well, are you getting something out of it? In three verses, he's going to give us his version of Isaiah 58, which is the, the true fast that we learned last year in the Old Testament. And again, because we do those, these three things so often, if we can improve here. I mean, talk about trick-or-treat and God giving us wages into our bag. Does our bag have holes? Remember Haggai chapter 1? In our service, in our prayers, and in our fasting, do we have anything to show for it? Or do we need to sew up our bag? Because God is giving us wages, the riches of eternity. So let's turn to each one of these three. Verse 1, take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. And then again, you don't need a reward from your Father. You're getting rewards already from your peers 
who look at you in such admiration uh, or such gratitude. Now it's a matter of, I, I feel like I need to reciprocate and you did all this to me. I definitely want to do that to you so that it, then it's over and we're even and we're done and we can move on. No, let's keep accelerating. Let's arms race. Uh, let's pay it forward and multiply the blessing here. Let's not do it just to shine the spotlight on us. But wait a minute. Back in chapter 5, didn't you talk about a spotlight? Didn't you talk about a candle and that we needed to make sure people would see it? That, that we shouldn't hide those things under a bushel? We're the city on the hill. We want the world to see. Didn't you just tell us to let our light so shine before men? Didn't you call us the light of the world? Didn't you say that you wanted people to see our good works so they could glorify our Father which is in heaven? Well, yeah, but remember the end of that. To glorify your Father which is in heaven. Is that why you're doing it now? Or are you thinking, ah, God already has enough glory. I could use a little bit more of my own. Be careful here. I think part of the challenge is knowing which of those two verses we're supposed to be leaning into at any given time. Because there are times that, yes, let your light so shine. And other times where it's do not shine a light on what you're doing. And so much of what makes the difference is our motive. And what's going on in our heart. I talk about proving contraries all the time, right? And... This is a great example of a verse from chapter 5 pulling us in one direction and a contrary verse in chapter 6 pulling us in the other. It takes the Holy Ghost to help us know which one applies in any given circumstance. And so much of what will help determine it is what's happening in our heart. What's our motive? What's our purpose here? Can we become visible without becoming vain? Can we be popular without seeking popularity? Can we... Actually, this is really interesting. When I was younger, I, I used to think that, that humility was denying all compliments. And if someone says something nice to you, if they give you any kind of praise, then humility requires that you deflect that praise. And that's, that's not real humility. In fact, in some ways, it's rejecting a gift that's being offered you out of kindness, out of generosity. I really, gratitude is a gift. And when we deflect it, it's like we're slapping the gift out of somebody's hand. And so to me, I remember thinking about this, that rather than deflection, how about reflection? Can I reflect that gratitude back to the person and include them in the praise? And can I reflect it back to God? since he's really the source of all good gifts anyway. Uh, that's something I've tried to work on for a long, long time. So that, so that light can shine, and no bushel hiding it, but a light that glorifies everyone, that glorifies the, the seer, uh, that, that is recognizing light, but it's shining back on them, that recognizes the ultimate source, capital S, of that light, the light of the world. It's a fine line that we draw, but to give God the glory in all things, that's reflection. To invite people in to that moment of, of combined gratitude. They're grateful for you. You're grateful for them. We're all grateful for God. 
grateful for shared experiences, grateful for people that have blessed us and it's our, just our chance to pay it forward. And now don't just pay it back. You can pay it forward to others as well. And now this is what the Lord is inviting us to do. He goes on in verse 2 through 4. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee. That's where we get this idea of tooting your own horn. Don't blast the trumpet. Come all eyes on me. No, 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 no. Who does that? Keep reading. Don't sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward, and they're getting it in the here and now. I'd rather take mine in the, in the next life. But what is that reward? It's personal esteem, it's popularity, it's all eyes on me. In fact, that's the idea of a hypocrite. We think of hypocrites in a certain way of, oh, you claim to be so good and yet you aren't. Well, the word hypocrite for the Greeks simply meant a, a stage actor. There you are at the theater, and yet where the spotlights shine, where you are on stage and everyone is watching. But there's a difference between an actor and a character. The real actor is the one behind the mask. That's where we kind of get this idea of hypocrisy and its negative connotation. That you're wearing a mask and it's not really you. But to think of just being on stage as a form of this type of hypocrisy, because I want people to see what I'm doing. But is it really you? Is that really you under there? Or, or, have you played the part of this character so long that you've forgotten who the real actor is and now that you, you really think that that person is you? I'll be careful. Be careful about spotlights and stages. They can be intoxicating. It's the grease paint they talk about, okay, in Hollywood. The other thing, though, is it's not just Hollywood. It's the synagogue and the street. Notice those two settings for this earthly stage. And there's spiritual settings, there's the synagogue, and there's secular settings, there's the street. And it's interesting where we choose to be hypocritical or where we want to shine before the world. And some people who would never care to get the world's eyes on them really want to stand out in the synagogue, really want to be seen as, oh, just the, the righteous one, the holier-than-thou the, the person that my, my fellow saints will look up to. Be careful about trying to shine in the synagogue. And then those that are trying to shine in the street, a different form of worldly popularity, but no less dangerous. In fact, Elder Maxwell even talked about what he called an ironic reverse form of hypocrisy, where the hypocrisy, the way we see it, is usually to appear more righteous than we really are. But Elder Maxwell pointed out, sometimes we want to appear less righteous than we really are. We want to appear less committed. Sometimes in the synagogue, we want to seem more righteous. But in the street, we want to appear less righteous. That, but on the inside, we know what's right, and we, we know where we stand, and we want to hold on to that. But I don't want to be considered a Peter Priesthood or a Molly Mormon. I guess we can't even say Molly Mormon any, anymore. Uh, a Cindy Saint? I don't know. <laughs> a Doug the Disciple? Put, put whatever your alliteration want, wants you want it to be. But are we... I want to be seen higher or lower. Can we not just be real? Especially in an age that 
seems to talk about authenticity so much? Can we be equally aware of the authentic natural man that's a part of us, but also the authentic spiritual saint that is part of who we are as well? Oh, there's so much here that we need to wrestle with, but we need to wrestle with whatever's inside us that's forcing us or leading us to want to be seen in a certain way. That's what the Lord is trying to cure us of. And how does he cure us? Look at the next verse. When thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Again, there's a sense of who do you want the rewards to come from? Your peers or your heavenly parents? When do you want those rewards to come? Mansion in this life or the life to come? Purify motives all along the way. And I love the way he puts it, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. I've heard it said that if you do something nice, or excuse me, when somebody does something nice for you, never forget it. But when you do something nice for someone else, never remember. Just move on to the next person in need. Uh, and don't bask in the glow of your goodness. Here, often covenants are made with our right hand. And I'm not trying to say anything negative to you southpaws out there. Okay? Left-handedness is a beautiful thing too. But if you think about some kind of an analogy of if your right hand is your covenant hand, what would leave your left hand then? If this is the spiritual person, then this is the natural person. And I love the thought of if your right hand is doing good things because you've made covenants to do it and the natural, I mean, the spiritual person that you are, that's what you want to do. Then don't ever let your left hand know because the left hand's a natural man. And you don't want the left, the natural man to perk up and go, oh yeah, we did do something good, didn't we? Yeah, because we're good. And the world needs to know that. Mm, be careful there. If you need to keep your left hand in your pocket every time that your right hand is out doing good deeds, then yes, we might have to be one-handed disciples. If, that, if the hand that is offending us is that left hand, and it's bringing to our attention and everyone else's all the good that our right hand is doing, then maybe that's the hand that offends us and needs to be cut off and cast from us, like we saw last time. In verse 5 and 6, Jesus shifts to prayer, but still tries to teach the same lesson. He says, when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. And these hypocrites are busy, okay? They're always almsgiving or praying. But these ones, they love to pray standing in the synagogues, there's that setting, and in the corners of the streets, there's that setting. And why? Same reason as those almsgivers, that they may be seen of men. Well, verily I say unto you, they have their reward, they're getting it already. Motive all the time, has to be purified. The very first talk that Elder Dallin H. Oaks gave as an apostle back in, was it 1984? He talked about a hierarchy of motives. He asked the question, why do we serve? Why almsgiving? Why prayer, soon to see? Why fasting? If he said, it's just, if it's out of fear of punishment, that's beneath us. If it's out of hope for some kind of earthly reward, that's what Jesus is getting at here. But even if we elevate it and hopes for an eternal reward, we're getting better. But even that's not the ultimate reason to do these things. Duty is good, but it's still not the loftiest. What's the best reason to do any of these good deeds out of the pure love of Christ? 
So not only if we didn't get earthly rewards, we'd still do it. What if we weren't even getting heavenly rewards? That's really purifying our motives. Because the Lord keeps promising rewards in the next life. But to grow even beyond that and say, you don't have to pay me back for anything. I'm already in your debt. I'm not trying to pay you back by what I'm doing. I just love you. I would do anything to show it. That's really what we're after here. And how do we do that when it comes to prayer? Notice what he tells us in verse 6. If that was, if verse 5 is what not to do, verse 6 is what to do. Thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. And when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy father which is in secret. And thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Did you notice the setting there? No more synagogue, no more street. Because those kinds of prayers are just to be heard. Just to be seen. This is the, the Zoramites at the Ramiumptum getting to their high place, so all eyes on me and everyone looking up to me. Ooh, I love how that feels. And then I extend my hands heavenward to grow even larger in the estimation of everyone down below and then start praising God. Really, I'm talking to myself, uh, saying how, much, how grateful I am that I'm so much better than everyone else. We'll see Jesus give a, a whole parable on this as he compares the prayers of the publican and the Pharisee later on. But here in the Sermon on the Mount, just dropping those hints, who are you talking to anyway? Have you ever listened to a prayer where it really does seem like they're praying to the congregation rather than to God? And they're hoping that people will be so impressed with their prayer instead of being invited into the attitude of adoration that a prayer is meant to be. I remember a story from, I think it was Spencer W. Kimball, that was invited, he was in Washington, D.C., and was invited to give an opening prayer at a session of, con of con I think the Senate, maybe Congress in general, I, don't, I can't remember. But uh, there was a lot of people were late or didn't come to that particular session. And so when President Kimball gave the prayer, it was kind of a sparse crowd. And his host apologized for that. Said, oh, I'm so sorry there weren't more people here to hear you pray. And what was President Kimball's response? Oh, that's okay. I wasn't talking to them anyway. You get it? Who are we talking to? Well, it's going to be more clear that I'm not talking to any earthly audience if the setting for my prayer is my closet behind a closed door where my petitions are being raised to heaven in secret. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be literally the closet behind a closed door. Do you remember Nephi's prayer in the book of Helaman? This is a much later Nephi than the one we're used to talking about. He's on his garden, he's in his garden, on his tower, and yet he is so oblivious to anyone around him that a crowd has gathered by the time he's done with his prayer. But when he opens his eyes and sees them there, he's shocked. That's, some people are oblivious to God and hopes that everyone around is listening. Nephi was oblivious to the people around so he could truly be connected with God. That's a good prayer. Now, a closet can help, but when I looked at, that was a, a burning bush for me this time. As I looked, I'm like, what does he mean by closet? Is a first century Greek word, closet, same? What does he intend? And what's interesting about it is the word itself can mean any kind of small chamber. Actually, more accurately, any kind of inner chamber. The word has been used for store chambers and secret chambers or granaries or treasuries. It's this thing on the inside you're trying to protect. 
Because that's where you're going to store up what matters most to you. Hmm, that's your closet? That's where I'm keeping all my stuff? It's interesting why we spend so much time in our closets is often <laughs> to be seen of man. And I want to look like this and I've got this and what's the fad or fashion of the day and I just want all of that. And what's interesting for the Lord, he's got a different purpose for a closet. And to go there, to me in some ways the closet becomes the metaphor for the heart because that's where our treasure is. He'll say that later in the same sermon. That that's our treasury, that's our granary. That's the innermost chamber. And is that the site from which we are supplicating? Is that the place of our prayers? Or is it just mouth giving lip service? And we didn't reach down deep enough into our closet. I mean, the closed door is important too. I'm not doing it to be seen of man. But part of that closed door also is to cut us off from other kinds of cares, peripheral problems. Surface level stresses. It's just, or what, can I just close myself off from that? And all the world's distractions. Remember what we saw last week where Jesus cleanses those that were vexed with devils so they could really be present for this sermon? Can we do the same for our prayers? I've sometimes wondered if our prayer needs an opening prayer of its own. Of just, Heavenly Father, I'm about to talk with you. I know I'm, technically I'm talking with you right now, but... I don't really feel it yet. I want to. So please help me close the door on all my worldly worries because they're, they're banging on the door trying to knock it down. Please, I'll present some of those worldly worries to you, believe me. But can I be untroubled as I do so? Can I be still and know that thou art God? Can I be here in my innermost chamber? the closet of my heart. Close whatever doors might be about to spring open and really connect with heaven. That's a prayer. The way he describes it next in verse 7 and 8, when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do. He's been talking about hypocrites. What about heathen? See, the heathen, they don't even know God. These are the pagans out there that have no clue who the God of Israel really is. And do we sometimes act like that? Do we not know the God we're supposedly speaking to? The words of our prayers, are they just speaking lines the way actors use on stage? Those weren't your words. Those, that was in the script. Is that all we're doing? Are they vain repetitions? Because here I am practicing for my stage play. I've got to memorize the lines. Oh, no. They think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them. For your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. Well, then why does he make us ask him? We'll see more examples of that throughout the Gospels. But because he wants to communicate with us. He wants to stay in touch with us. He wants to have a relationship. And even if it starts with us asking him for stuff, at least we're talking. And hopefully we can grow up from there and start really communicating, independent of any of our needs. There's something powerful here about the Lord's caution against so-called prayer. As he warns us about hypocrisy and about heathenism, about vanity, 
Because when he says vain repetitions, which is the problem here? Is it vain or is it repetition? The sacrament prayers are very repetitious. In fact, if you don't repeat it correctly, you better repeat it again till you do. It's not repetition that's the problem. It's the vanity of those repetitions. And that can be either vain as in all eyes on me or vain as in worthless. That was done in vain. It didn't do anything. Your prayer did not ascend to heaven. If you had eyes to see, there'd be spit wads all over your ceiling because that's as high as the prayer got. There was no real intent. And as Mormon tells us in Moroni 7, God receiveth none such. I used to wonder when I was a kid, like, how does he hear all these prayers at the same time? And like, if I saw my sister or brother praying, I'm like, I'll wait till they're done. I don't want to clog the lines. I honestly wonder now, are there lulls and moments of silence? Long stretches where no phone is ringing upstairs because we're praying to each other or praying to ourselves or praying to our pillow or praying whatever it is that isn't really prayer. Even those that think they're doing well because of their much speaking, it's not about length, it's about depth. Go ask Enos, and what's the most important part of his prayer? The fact that it took all day and into the night? I think he'd say no. It was the fact that his soul hungered, and he raised his voice high until it reached the heaven. The power of prayer is not measured in the length between its opening and its closing. It's measured in the distance between its depth and its height. It is meant to be vertical, that after all, not horizontal. Enos knew it, and Jesus wants to make sure we know it as well. And so he gives us an example of it. And in verse 9, he says, After this manner, therefore pray ye. Notice he didn't say, repeat these words. He's simply saying, follow this pattern. Pray after this manner. And what follows then is what we call the Lord's Prayer. Now, I think too often, because we don't, we're not Catholics and we're not Protestants, and we see in Catholic or Protestant churches often a repetition of the Lord's Prayer, and we automatically think that that repetition is vain, that's judgmental of us. And in most cases, not only unkind, but incorrect. There is a beauty in the repetition of this Lord's Prayer that I have sensed in saints of other faiths. And when their heart is there, and they're not doing it just to be seen in the synagogue, then repeating this, I, I worry that as Latter-day Saints, we don't even know it. And God forbid that we ever utter similar language. No, I don't see us reciting the Lord's Prayer in sacrament meeting anytime soon, nor do we need to. But to understand the pattern Jesus is giving us here as a pattern for our prayers, even if you use the exact language but do it with feeling, then your repetition is not vain. And what pattern is he showing? First, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. This is our Father. This is a father, and not just any father, our father. The plural pronoun there, there's a collective. If you're praying in public, please know that you're supposed to be raising the prayers of everyone within earshot. And it's not just your needs, it's our needs. 
It's our Father, and it's a Father. He is a Father, not some immaterial force out there. This is a loving and living being who knows you and wants to be known of you. So recognize, picture in your mind a loving Father who is in heaven, a place from which he can see our every need and meet them. Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed, the word there means to make holy or to treat as holy. God doesn't need our help to be holy. He's man of holiness himself. But for us to treat him as, as holy as he is, it's going to change us. There's, I think, too often when we teach our kids to pray or as we teach investigators to pray in the mission field, those elementary levels of, of the lesson, we never grow up beyond. And so what's a prayer? Oh, you address God and then thank him and then ask him and then end in the name of Jesus Christ and say amen. And in fact, you're so close to the finish line, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen, becomes this muttered one-syllable word. Like you're diving across the finish line because you're almost done. Now, prayer's got to be more than that. And in that beginning, as you address your Father in heaven, do, you, do we even sense what sacred ground we're on? Do we want to remove our shoes since the ground upon which we are Kneeling is holy. Do we? That God would condescend to even listen to us. There's condescension. There's compassion. There's kindness. And if that doesn't fill you with a sense of wonder and awe, then maybe you're not quite ready yet to address him because you don't see what an honor it is that we can address him at all. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I remember once getting home from a late night, teaching a night class of institute, great experience, came home, I was exhausted and I was hungry. And I grabbed some food, uh, heated up whatever we had for dinner and it was one of those close your eyes, bow your head, uh, fold your arms, and the quickest kind of prayer you can imagine. Bless the food. Thanks for the food and bless it because I'm, I'm hungry. And right before I ended the prayer, I realized that I'd never begun one. And as I, as I was bowing before the food, not knowing I was bowing before the throne of grace, I stopped and realized that I hadn't been talking to anyone. And so I apologized and reminded myself this is not about the food. It's certainly not about checking off a box saying, well, you're supposed to bless it, so here I am, I did it. Instead, I just sat there and tried to feel gratitude well up within me for the blessing God had given me, not just the food in front of me, but the feast I just had experienced at Institute. I felt close to God, and only then after connecting with him, could I then disconnect and the prayer and begin eating? And it wasn't really a disconnection at all. You understand? I, I know you do. But hallowed be his name. Verse 10, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. What are we praying for there? God's kingdom. Nothing on my list. It's on, what's on his? What is God wanting to accomplish in my life, in the world? 
God, what can I do for thee? Rather than, well, here's your to-do list and all the stuff that you're supposed to do for me. No, we want thy kingdom to come. Remember section 65 of the Doctrine and Covenants when the Lord invites Joseph to offer a prayer? And even before the section's over, Joseph begins offering it. And what was that prayer? It was thy kingdom come. It was, may the kingdom of God go forth that the kingdom of heaven may come. This is Zion from below preparing for Zion from above. This is Zion being built so that Zion can be brought. And for us to do that holy work so that God's work and glory can come to pass for us all. Thy kingdom come. Ponder in your prayer. What is God trying to accomplish in my life and the lives of those I love? And how can I be a better part of that? Part of it's going to be honoring his will and submitting ourselves to his, reconciling our will to the will of God. And that's why we ask, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And I picture God looking at us going, really? Is that what you want? Because you have more say in that than, you, than you're admitting. <laughs> Sometimes it's us who are standing in the way of God's will being done on earth because we're not doing his will. So I hope... He might call us on that bluff if it's a bluff. Okay? The next phrase, verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. And that's all we're asking for. Not the entire loaf, not the whole week's worth. This, these are the Israelites. We are the Israelites. They're crossing our 40 years of wilderness wanderings and needing manna from heaven every day. And not stockpiling the blessings of God as if we were in some kind of scarcity economy. No, this is an abundance economy. But the Lord wants you to trust Him that He'll continue to be abundant. I'll give you what you need. Today, enough for today. Tomorrow, enough for tomorrow. If there's ever an occasion where you'll need more than a day's worth, like the day before the Sabbath in the days of the Israelites, then I'll give you double portion that day. It's fine. But I don't want you to stockpile your spirituality because faith has a short shelf life as elder iron has taught manna seems to melt once the sun comes up and it starts to rot if you've just been letting it it doesn't store very well it needs to be used it needs to be eaten and so what do you need you need a day's worth of bread ask me for it and then tomorrow ask again because prayer was never about checking the box. It was about creating a relationship. I've said this before and joked about it with my students that I heard a joke once of a young man that was emptying the, that was bringing in the groceries from the back of the, of the car to bring into the house. And his dad was there doing it as well. And the son said to his dad, Dad, all the food's right here. Why don't we just bless it all right now? And it'll save all those prayers later on. And the dad smiled and said, son, that's actually a genius idea. That would save a lot of time. Unfortunately, the food doesn't really need to be blessed until after your mother cooks it. And cue the, 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 the laugh track. But uh, it's more, in my case, it would be mom and, and children blessing the food I cook. But if that was all it was for, was to somehow change the chemical composition of the food, then let's just, I don't know, dedicate... The, the food supply. Let's just dedicate the farm or the supermarket and call it good. No, it wasn't about that. Prayer is not a checklist we give to God, but it's not a checklist he gives to us either. Like, did you pray before the food? Did you pray before the... 
No, it's a reminder. And I love that he connects it to eating and sleeping. We pray when we rise. We pray when we, fall, when we go to bed. Because sleep is not something we tend to forget. We pray before meals because we don't forget our food either. No, we tend to forget God. But if he can connect something forgettable to something unforgettable and ask us to pray in conjunction with things we do all the time and hardly ever forget to do, then maybe we'll always remember him like we promise every week. Oh yes, give us this day our daily bread. And tomorrow, in fact, before tomorrow, by lunch, I'll be hungry again. And I'll be grateful. I'll be worshipful. I'll be in awe before this hallowed helper who's giving us so much. Also, don't forget that it's a plural pronoun. Give us our daily bread. And so to be in the collective as we pray. I told you this before, too, that when I asked a missionary when I taught at the MTC, and I told them what they prayed for because I knew what it would be, the same things I prayed for as a missionary. And then I said, what do you think your companions and everyone else in this district are praying for? Same things. Well, how about instead of praying for the things you need, how about praying for the things they need? Make it collective, either our, or even make it totally selfless. Just bless them, but trust that they're asking similar prayers on your behalf. And instead of having one semi-selfish prayer being offered for you each day, in our district of 12, you now have 11 selfless prayers headed in your direction. There's something beautiful about our daily bread and wanting to include other people in the things we're praying for. There's more collective in verse 12, more plural pronouns. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We really are in this thing together. That's what loans and debts do. They tie people together by way of contract. Well, let's tie them together by way of covenant instead and make sure that covenant connects us to Christ and forgive each other. The irony there is, do we really mean that one? Because if, God, if that's a bluff and God called us on it, hmm, careful. Do we really want him to be as forgiving to us as we are forgiving of others? Because if we're jerks to one another, then I guess we're asking God to be a jerk to us. If we hold grudges, then we're asking God to hold a grudge. Now, if we're serious in that, then boy, we better be forgiving. We better remember what Jesus just said, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. And what he'll say a chapter from now about measuring out to others and having that same measure come back to us. That this is reciprocity. This is, this is the law of the harvest. In the next verse, verse 13, he says, Lead us not into temptation. Which sounds odd, because why would God ever want to lead us into temptation? Well, he doesn't. And the JST clarifies that. It reads, And suffer us not to be led into temptation. The Syriac version of the New Testament says basically the same. And so, just, Father, I don't trust myself. And these feet of clay seem to lead me downward in wrong directions all the time. Will you please lead me in better directions? Will you alert me when I leave the straight and narrow? Which is exactly what the Holy Ghost does. President Packer used to say that. That we never leave the straight and narrow without first overruling a warning. There was a warning. There was something that let us know, a little twinge of guilt or a, a whispered, still small voice. Leave this 
situation. Turn off the TV or the, or the computer. The, the date is over. Time to come home. Or the party's not going to go anywhere better than where it's been. Let's end this thing. Whatever it might be, to pray for, to God, please help me avoid the kinds of temptations that do so easily beset me, to borrow Nephi's language. In fact, if I've already gotten myself into a mess, then please deliver us from evil. And then, then the way the prayer ends, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We've been praying to stay free from sin. We've been praying to be delivered from sin's consequences. Keep me out of the path and then keep me out of the mess that I got myself into. Deliver me from these things. And I'll try harder. I'll try again. I'll seek daily bread and actually eat the bread of life instead of letting it mold on, on the shelf somewhere. I will be more forgiving of other people, trusting that, that, you, that thou art forgiving of me. I will include more worship in my prayer and hallow thy name so that we have an actual relationship that will help guard me from downward paths and evil environments. And who gets the credit for all of it? Who gets the glory? He does. For thine is the kingdom. You're in charge. I want thy will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want thy kingdom to come. And the power, no wonder I need to be endowed with power from on high. I don't have enough of it on my own. No wonder I keep falling into temptation. No wonder I can't deliver myself from evil or even provide for myself my daily bread. Thine is the power. And as that power comes, thine is the glory. I began with such a worshipful feeling hallowing the name of God. And I end again with a reminder of that worshipfulness, that humility, that awe. I've been speaking with Almighty God. And may the glory be His forever. Can you hear a choir sing the Lord's Prayer? Can you hear a congregation as has been done for centuries among the saints, lifting their voice in a repetition that is anything but vain. Perhaps one of these days you can pray with one eye open, looking at this passage in Matthew chapter 6. Better yet, keep your eyes closed because you've internalized these words and memorized them, not just by inscribing them onto a flashcard, but engraving them in the fleshy tables of your heart. And if one of these days you can truly offer the Lord's prayer to your Father in heaven, I think we'll get a sense of what prayer is meant to be, especially as we then shift from His words to our own, making them as heartfelt as they are meant to be. I had an institute student years ago that <laughs> he was an athlete, uh, kind of coming back into the faith. And he kind of said it like it was, but just humble and open and wanted to learn, wanted to change. And one time after class, everyone else had left and he just said, Brother Halverson, Bro Hal, that's what they always call me. Bro Hal, I suck at prayer. I, I'd never had 
I don't typically use that word myself, but it just came out of him so naturally. I just, I'm not good at it. I don't. Any idea? Can you help? That's what the Lord just did. Among Jews for whom a prayer life was deeply rooted. But sew up the bag. Make it count. Connect with your Father in heaven. This young man, I asked him, do you, do you like the Marvel Universe? And he said, of course, everybody does. I'm like, okay, then do you know Doctor Strange? Oh yeah, great. He's my favorite one because he's the most spiritual. Not that the movie is the most spiritual, but here's a, a pure rationalist, a scientific thinking doctor that is then forced to realize there's a whole other world out there. And it's the spiritual one. I love that, that aspect of the movie. But as Doctor Strange is trying to figure out how to enter that other realm, and he's given his little sling ring, right? And you're supposed to you know, sw swing your hand around, and then the sparks start to fly, and it opens this portal to a spiritual dimension. Well, it's not the rationality that's going to open it. It's going to be real faith and pure spirit. And as I was describing this to my young friend, I said, instead of hiding behind language and just throwing out words that we've heard other people use that we've used before, seek a deeper feeling. Instead of saying thank you to God, just sit with your own feelings until you sense gratitude well up within you. And once the sparks start to fly, Hand it over to God. Instead of saying, please bless me, and then give the, your laundry list, sense within you your, your deep-seated needs and your inability to meet them on your own. And once that kind of humility arises, you have an, an emotion to offer God. Instead of saying sorry for your sins, try to actually feel sorry for them. And when godly sorrow begins to well up, you have deep water to offer God. It's not about what you say, it's what you feel. And by offering those feelings, some of my most powerful prayers have been wordless. And I'm consciously trying to avoid hiding behind language because words are easy to come up with. And instead, I'm just trying to experience things I can then give to God. Those are sweet experiences in prayer. And the Lord is inviting us to have them as he offers us the Lord's Prayer by way of example. If we can go line by line and realize that our worship can then lead to obedience and submission, which then leads to a greater trust and reliance upon the Lord, First for our physical blessings, but then for our spiritual ones, especially the blessing of deliverance from the consequences of our own sins. Once we feel that forgiveness flow into us, it's not just us that we're worried about. We begin thinking of all others. Enos went through that process as well. And so this collective prayer that we're offering God. As we do that, we become more and more like him, more and more holy. And by the time all is said and done, all we want is to build his kingdom and draw upon his power and add to his glory. No wonder we can say amen. We're ready to go act on our prayer. We're ready to go build that kingdom on earth so that the kingdom of heaven can come. We're ready to go gather the manna, enough for us and for others. 
We're ready to glorify God. That's a good prayer. The Lord then offers one additional caution. Uh, we're not quite done with the prayer section here. Because one of the things he said earlier is part of the hardest, is, is the hardest part. So it's worth a repetition. In verse 14 and 15, he says, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Can you see why that would be something worth repeating? Of all the things we just prayed for, that might be the one we didn't even notice that what we were saying, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Oh, really? Hmm. Careful then. Be more forgiving. Be more merciful. If you wouldn't offer mercy to others, but were demanding justice instead, then I guess all I can do is give you the, the justice you're demanding. That might come out in your favor on earthly relationships, but not on the divine one. For that one, you'll need mercy. So give it, and I'll give it to you. Now, if we've already seen service, if we've already seen prayer, what you see in 16 through 18 is fasting. And I won't say much about this because, again, Isaiah 58 is a, an even greater place to see it. Maybe the Lord was just dropping a hint and then wink, wink, nudge, nudge, go search your scriptures. But in verse 16 to 18, Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites. There they are again. They're always around, right? Spotlights and stages as far as the eye can see. And what are they doing? What kind of mask are they wearing? Oh, one of a sad countenance. Look as, as hungry as you can. For they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. They probably kind of push their stomach in and hopes it'll growl on cue so people know just how long it's been since I've eaten. Well, verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head, wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. I mean, at the end of the day, who are we trying to impress anyway? our fellow fasters, or the one who has the power to offer us our daily bread. There's a lot of room for improvement for me, I know, in all of these areas and in so many others. If we are sufficiently humble and allow the Lord to shine a light beneath our bushels into our dark places, he'll let us know our rooms for improvement. And those rooms, they often go all the way down to the closet itself the deepest recesses we've got. Well, that's where, that's what the Lord is aiming for. Notice verse 19 to 21. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. Don't do it in the synagogue. Don't do it on the street. Don't do it to be seen of men. You already have your reward. But where are you going to put it? What are you going to do with it? A moth? <laughs> that's what's going to eat up the clothes in your closet. Rust, your earthly treasures will sadly decay or at least depreciate. Thieves breaking through, steal it, and you're not even supposed to stand up to them when they do. It was, you shouldn't have put it in a place where they could have stolen it to begin with. Instead, what, where should you put your treasures? Here's the answer. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through nor steal. And here's why. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Talk about peace of mind. 
where you know that what you have laid up in store will never suffer damage or decay or depreciation. No thieves. Just an almighty God, a generous Father in heaven, who will pour out blessings on earth and then store those blessings in heaven. A mansion waiting for you to occupy with him. In verse 22 and 23, he says, The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. Now, a single eye, what are we, winking? Are we squinting? What are we doing there? Well, the JST clarifies, if thine eye be single to the glory of God, that's what we're after here. And that's what this whole chapter has been about so far, right? In our service, in our prayers, in our fasting, are our eyes on others or are they on God? Do we want others' eyes to be on us or on God? If You see, when your eye is single, when you're closing one eye, when you're lining up the, the sights on your rifle, when you're closing one eye so you can see through the telescope a little more clearly at what your ultimate goal might be, your eye needs to be single to the glory of God and not focused on ourselves instead. If we'll do that, what's the promise? The whole body shall be full of light. Now, that's interesting here because when he says the light of the body is the eye, light there can also be translated lamp. So if, the, if your eye is the lamp, if you remember in the book of, was it Psalms or Proverbs, that the, the word of God is a lamp unto our feet? Well, imagine the eye being the lamp by which we can see. Okay, light, lamp, eye, we're all getting these visual aids, <laughs> focus on visual. But what, then when he says, if your eye is single, the Greek word there suggests it's sound, it's clear, it's perfect. So if the light by which you see, the lens through which you view the world, the lamp that illuminates your path, if that is a good one, if it's a sound one, if it's a perfect one, then don't worry about it. Your whole body is going to be filled with that light. Everything about you, everything you do, everything you feel, everything you want, your desires will be purified because your focus is on the right things. You've purged out the natural man. You cut off the left hand. He's nowhere present. And the right hand can now serve without any kind of obstruction. For us to gain that kind of spiritual sight, that singleness of vision, that I will consecrate my all to the Lord. I will let His light so shine in me. I want Him to have the kingdom and the power and the glory. Then my whole body will be full of light and everything I do will be for Him. The alternate is what he says in the next verse. But if thine eye be evil, if that central focus, if that lens through which you see the world, if it's wrong, if it's opaque, if it's not clear, if it's evil, then thy whole body shall be full of darkness. And if therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? I mean, if what you see by is skewed, then everything's going to be off. If the scope on your rifle is off target, then you'll never hit the right goal. If your steering is not in alignment, you think you're going straight and you end up going in circles. Pick your analogy, whatever works best for you. But by what do you set your sights? 
And if you are looking at the world through the, world, through the world's lenses, philosophies of men mingled with Scripture, not even mingled much anymore, then, we'll, then everything will be off. And how great is that kind of darkness? It's going to end up affecting everything else. So, verse 24, one of the most famous verses in Matthew chapter 6, and another kind of key oh, center point in what the Savior is teaching here. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And mammon is another one of those interesting words, like raka that we saw last week. What is raka? Well, it's an Aramaic word, so we're just going to transliterate it. Instead of come up with a perfect English translation or Hebrew translation, Greek translation, let's just use the original and we'll just spell it out in English letters so we can at least say what they said. Raka. What does that mean? Well, empty-headed, you blockhead, you moron, you idiot, or whatever else it meant in Babylon where that word first arose. Same with mammon. Mammon is a transliteration of the Aramaic, which is based in Babylon. And to think about whatever Babylonian things are seeking our allegiance, whatever ties us back into the world, we usually translate mammon as just money. And it can, it can be that. It can be wealth. It can be riches. But I love that it's transliterated instead of translated. Because that leaves us kind of wondering, what hold does Babylon still have on me? And is it keeping me from more fully loving God and giving myself to Him? Babylon has a strong pull. I think we all know that. The, by the way, it might, the word mammon also might be related to the Hebrew word for trust. And that's, a, that's part of this issue too. Who do you trust? Zion or Babylon? Jehovah or Lucifer? Jerusalem or... Hollywood, I mean, take your pick. But all these Babylonian bonds that we find ourselves in, and we have to break free of those. Lead me not into temptation. Free me from the evil. Deliver me from that. Because otherwise, I'm just afraid that I'll end up going all the way in. Because notice how it's not just, well, a little 50-50, and I've got some, some God and some, some mammon. No, but it's not just a matter of, well, I like them both, but I prefer God, or I prefer the world, on, at least on Fridays and Saturdays. Sunday I'll give to, to God, Saturday I'll give to mammon, whatever. No, because notice what he said, you'll hate the one and love the other. You'll hold to one, that's real allegiance. You'll despise the other. At the very beginning, often it feels like we can compromise. And, yeah, well, I think I can serve two masters. Well, you're underestimating the kinds of loyalty that both masters demand. God is a jealous God. He's fiercely loyal to us and wants us to be fiercely loyal to him. And Satan, same thing. He, doesn't, he never learned to share with the other children. He wants everything you've got. Just ask the prodigal son how much Babylon left him with when all was said and done. So, what do we do? From the very beginning, we've seen this in this chapter repeatedly. What's my motivation? Is it God or the world? 
which is my master, God or the world? Who do I want to be seen by, God or the world? Who do I want to offer me their rewards, God or the world? It's amazing what the Lord is trying to do here to wean us off the world. Or as Elder Maxwell once said to us gospel teachers, pry your students away from the cares of the world. That's a strong verb. I actually brought a crowbar to class the next day and said, this is the tool Elder Maxwell told me to start using on you. And they're like, huh? And we had a great conversation about just how wedded to the world we happen to be, to the point of needing to be pried away from it. How's that for loving the world? And ended up, and to the point that you end up hating God. We can't let it happen. I mean, no wonder, like we saw the Old Testament talk about covenant infidelity so much, because... Yeah, it's adultery. God wants our, all our might, might, mind, and strength. Our heart, might, mind, and strength. He wants it all. And so does the devil. Uh, the longer we go trying to keep them both happy, A, the less happy we'll be, but neither one will be fully satisfied with just a portion of us. So what's the proverb say? A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So pick a side and stick with it. What did Joshua say? Choose you this day whom you will serve. What did Elijah say? How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. If Baal, if Babylon, if Mammon, go with that. And unfortunately, so many people in our day are being duped that that really is the path to prosperity. Well, it isn't. And so what do we do? We put all our eggs in the Lord's basket. We cut ties with Babylon. Oh, there's, there's, there's still some things we have to be in the world for, but we refuse to become of it. I just met one of you uh, over the phone this past week. Amazing sister who's had a, a hard life and found hope in a dark place when a counselor at the prison where she was incarcerated gave her a Book of Mormon. And it began to change everything for her. It was so amazing to meet her and to hear some of her story and the kinds of changes she made in her life, beginning to say no to mammon and yes to God. Uh, ultimately, it took an actual physical move, a change of location, because she was still too much in the world where she had been and old connections and old ties needed to be cut for her to be delivered from evil. And bravely, courageously, she cut those ties. So impressive. I mentioned to her as we were talking, it's amazing how often in the scriptures God asked people to move and to change geographically so they could change spiritually. That may or may not be possible for many of us. It may or may not be necessary for many of us, but the spiritual move is necessary for us all. And we choose God at the expense of Babylon or mammon, whatever you want to call it. Well, to help us make that decision, Let's talk a little bit more about providing for our needs. Let's talk about daily bread. Uh, since it's the bread of Babylon that they seem to be offering, well, that, that, that molds in even faster than, than manna does. So notice what the Lord is saying in the next few verses. Okay? When, who will provide for you in your real days of need? Because God gives, the world takes. So let's make this clear. Verse 25 through 27. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life. What ye shall eat, what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. 
that's the kind of stuff that you filled your closet with. That's, we're, gonna, we're talking about different closets here. Don't worry about that. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? I mean, behold the fowls of the air. They sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? These are famous verses, but I love as we, as we pull them apart and, and coax out some meaning here. The fowls of the air, I always provided for them. In fact, through the fowls of the air, I even provided for Elijah. Just a raven's ration, but it was enough as long as he got it every day. Just trust me. I'll always provide for you like I provide for all creation. Now, be careful, though, about what he says about take no thought for your life. This is another one of those contraries, because on the other hand, you can read verses about, well, prepare, organize yourselves and, and prepare every needful thing uh, to, to lay up in store, to, get, to gather for a rainy day. And that's good counsel. So can you picture the danger of taking this counsel to the extreme and, hey, I'm going to take no thought for my life. I'm not going to worry about it at all. Well, actually, you just said the right word. I'm not going to worry about it. That's good. But think about it. Prepare for it. You do need to be doing that. In fact, I worry that, we, that we're missing, that the King James translators did us a disservice by using a, a phrase that, that makes, us seem like, makes it seem like we're totally off the hook and should never think about any of this stuff. And that's dangerous. When you look at the Greek original, the phrase take no thought more accurately means do not be over anxious about that. Go ahead and think about it. Go ahead and prepare for it. But when it's so anxiety inducing that you, yeah, you're thinking about it and that's all you can think about. Ooh, that's overthinking. That's overzealousness. That's over anxiousness. And and that's actually going to paralyze you from doing what you need to do to prepare for that kind of future. So, in fact, the, the same word is used in the story of Mary and Martha. Can you guess which word it's being translated? When Martha is complaining about Mary and why isn't she helping and gentle Jesus says, calms down Martha's troubled heart and says, Oh, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. And that word careful is the same Greek word as what we're seeing here at the end of Matthew chapter 6. Take no thought is, no, take, you're taking too much thought. You're caring too much about the cares of the world. And I can take care of that. It's okay. Martha, come join us. I can cook for myself after this little sermon, okay? Just come and rest and be at rest, be at peace concerning those otherworldly cares. They're overwhelming you. They're pressing down upon you. And it's getting in the way of, of your faith, of your trust, of your hope, of your rest. Even later when the Lord says to his, to his apostles, take no thought beforehand what you should say. It's the same verb also, which always bears this connotation of over anxiety, of worry and stress. No, go ahead and prepare. You know, I'm not saying that you have to shoot from the hip every time. And I'm not giving you just free reign to, to step into things ill-prepared for them. No, just don't get too worried about them. Do your best and then leave the rest in my hands. It's good. I got this. 
ask the, ask the birds of the, the fowls of the air. I got them too. Now there's a JST to this passage that adds something to it. Okay, gives us a different perspective on what the Savior is saying. This is JST Matthew 6, 25 to 27. Again, I say unto you, go ye into the world and care not for the world. <laughs> Don't get past those worldly worries. Get past the worries of what the world thinks about you. He says, for the world will hate you and will persecute you and will turn you out of their synagogues. Nevertheless, you shall go forth from house to house, teaching the people, and I will go before you. And your heavenly Father will provide for you whatsoever things you need for food, what you shall eat, for raiment, what you shall wear or put on. I've got it covered, so don't worry. I will provide. I'll provide your sense of self when the world is trying to tear you down and persecute you. I'll provide you a, a sense of community when you're turned out from the synagogue or turned out from the street. I'll provide food when you don't have anything to eat. Clothing, I will clothe you with the robes of my own righteousness. But you have to trust in me instead of caring so much for the things of the world. Can we be as faithful to God as the birds of the air? Can we trust that he'll provide for us? There's actually a story I love from the early days of the church when John Taylor, a young convert to the church, is in New York City preparing for a mission to England. And he's been going around telling people that, hey, I've got all the money I need. I'm, I'm set. It's all, it's all good. Well, Parley P. Pratt, who's also in New York City at the time, on a different kind of mission. He's, his is a publication mission. I need you to write and publish, get the word out here. And he, he hears stories that, oh, John Taylor, Elder Taylor's got money. I need all the help I can get to get the word out. Uh, printing costs and, and paper costs and ink and typesetters. This is rough. So he goes to John Taylor and he says, Brother Taylor, um, do you have any money? And Brother Taylor, Elder Taylor says, oh, yeah, I got plenty of money. And Parley P. Pratt says, oh, so good. Do you, could I have two or $300 to be able to pursue the, the work that I'm, I'm called to do? And Brother Taylor gets a big smile on his face and reaches into his pocket and says, I'll give you all that I have. And he hands him one cent because that's all he had. He had one penny to his name. And Parley P. Pratt, who had a good sense of humor, was probably laughing going, what? Why are you telling people that you had plenty of money? And John Taylor said, because I did. I mean, I don't, I don't owe any money to anybody. My debts are paid. Uh, I have food to eat and I'm staying with people here. And so I'm, I'm good. And I had an extra penny on top of that. Whoa, I'm loaded. And you can have it now. And Parley Pratt was like, you, gotta go, you need money to get your ticket and be able to go to England. And John Taylor was like, oh, I'm sure the Lord will provide. It'll be fine. In fact, other people tried to provide. And they're like, oh, he doesn't have any money. Well, let's, let's, let's give and offer. And so there's a bunch of saints were coming together with kind of a collection plate. And John Taylor said, if you've got money to spare, give it to Parley Pratt. He's the one that needs it. I'll be okay. And with that amount of faith, he just started kind of wandering around the city. And miraculously, people he didn't even know would come up to him and unsolicited, they would offer him money. That's never happened to me in New York City. But by the time it was time for him to get on ship and cross the Atlantic, not only did he have enough money for his ticket, he paid for a second elder's ticket who couldn't afford to go either. The Lord really does provide if we trust in him.
John Taylor trusted. Well, look at verse 28 and 30. And if you thought the fowls were smart, well, the flowers are too. And the Lord says, why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, the ancient Jews would sometimes use grass to burn, to kind of preheat the oven to get things started. But if that's the case, it's just kindling, then shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Now the JST softens that a little bit. The Lord says, how much more will he not provide for you if ye are not of little faith? So he's not necessarily calling them out for lack of faith there, but he's warning them against its potential. If you'll just have sufficient faith, then God will provide for whatever is sufficient for your needs. He'll, he'll cover it. He's got this, okay? Trust him. So what's his counsel? Look at 31. Therefore, take no thought, which again, think, but don't overthink. Uh, be prepared, but not paralyzed by worry. Don't be over anxious about this. Take no thought, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. Those are worldly worries. Don't worry about... Babylonian burdens. Don't worry about Gentile fears. You're a saint, and I provide for my saints. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. Trust in that. The daily bread will come every day that you ask for it. And if we'll just believe, if we'll exercise sufficient faith, then what will we have power to do? Verse 33 and 34. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The JST there says, Wherefore, seek not the things of this world, but seek ye first to build up the kingdom of God and to establish his righteousness. So a much fuller version of that first phrase. It's more than just seek the kingdom of God. It's <laughs> your allegiance is being sought by someone else. So first, avoid the negative. Let's center ourselves on the positive. Don't worry about the world. Focus on the kingdom of God. Try to build it up. Establish the Lord's righteousness and what will flow to you as a result. All these things shall be added unto you. Your daily bread, your living water, your robes of righteousness, everything you need will be added. So take therefore no thought for the morrow. For the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. And again, that's the same word about over-anxiety, overthinking. Trust me, there will be enough to worry about tomorrow that you don't have to worry about it today. The way he ends this, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. That's for sure. I have enough to worry about today, not to force tomorrow's worries to come early or yesterday's worries to continue to haunt me. So much of mindfulness boils down to being in the present. And right now, if I'm with God, then I've got everything I need. Without yesterday's regrets haunting me or tomorrow's worries crashing down prematurely. All I need is today. And God will give me today my daily bread. 
He is the son of righteousness and he arises with healing in his wings to give the fowls of the air, his fellow fowls, all they need to give his fellow saints all that we are asking for. I'm amazed at the bounty of God, his generosity, far beyond anything that we deserve. He puts us first, but he asks us to do the same and put him first. The order is what matters there. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Everything else will then, after, later, be added. That miracle will come after your faith. So let faith precede the miracle. Trust in God. You, say, you see the same order in what Jacob taught in chapter 2 of Jacob so beautifully. It's verse 18 and 19. Before ye seek for riches, seek for the kingdom of God. And after ye have obtained a hope in Christ, ye shall obtain riches if ye seek them. If that's really what you want? Great. I'll give them to you. And I can afford to. Not just because I have the abundance of riches, but I can afford to do that for your sake. Because it's not going to lead to the pride cycle. The way he says it, you'll receive it if you seek them, and ye will seek them for the intent to do good. Not, and thou shalt. No, ye will. This is not a commandment. This is a natural consequence. I know you'll use these things for their intended purpose, which is to bless everyone. I can, I can guarantee that. Why? Because you've already ob obtained your hope in Christ, which means it's no longer a gamble on God's part to bless us. With riches in this case, or with education, if that's what you desire, or popularity, if you're going to use it for the right purposes, whatever it is that you are seeking, if you put God first and foremost in your life, He can bless you with that thing because He can trust you with it. And He knows that the, the living water He's sending to you will get to the end of the row. You're not kinking the hose. What the Lord has taught us so far today in Matthew chapter 6 is such a fitting sequel to chapter 5 that we've perfected our, we become so much closer to being perfect in Christ through chapter 5. But man, we've got some motives to purify. And so to cleanse our hearts of any of kind of the, the worldly worries or the worldly cares, the shouts and praise in the synagogue or in the street, the masks we wear when we're on stage, whether hypocrites or heathen, there's so much to, John, to Matthew chapter 6 that is meant to help us love the right master. And that master is Jesus Christ. If we'll come unto him, he will provide for our every need. And he will help us provide for the needs of others, since we're all in this thing together. It's with that thought in mind that we then turn the page to chapter 7 to see how we treat those others that are still somewhere back in chapter 5 or chapter 6. So Matthew 7 begins. Right on the heels of what we've seen in 5 and 6, you're perfect, getting there. You're, you've got perfect motives, getting there. But what about everyone else? Begin in chapter 7, verse 1, with a famous phrase, Judge not that ye be not judged. Quit looking down or looking back at those in 5 or 6. You were there once. And, and the Lord was patient with you, as well as others that were further ahead on the path than you were. So don't judge them. Now, keep reading. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. So again, this is the law of the harvest. This is send it out. It comes right back. This is blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. 
All these ideas are still being woven together. The Luke version actually adds to it, Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. So that ties it back into the whole idea of forgiveness that we saw in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Really? You want it that way? You want to be judged as you judge others? You want God to be impatient with your progress since you seem to be impatient with the progress of others? Oh, we're all still in the sermon somewhere. And God is allowing us to grow up in Him patiently. He's got, he plays the long game. He's got time on His side. But there's also something here we need to be cautious about. Not over-anxious, of course. Take no thought about that. But do think about this. Judge not that ye be not judged. That sounds a lot like the moral relativism that we live in right now. So are people doing it right by going around saying, you do you? That's the common phrase nowadays, right? I mean, who am I to judge? So yeah, you do you and you be the, your authentic self, whichever self you want to be. Uh, and it's totally good. And I'm not going to rock the boat or ruffle feathers or say anything against it. Because who am I to judge? Do you live your own truth, which suggests that there's no absolute truth or way and truth and life like Jesus. So we'll do whatever floats your boat, whatever works for you. Fine. I'm not judging. Jesus told me not to. You see the danger of that, taking that to the extreme? And again, this would only be one half of the contrary where all kinds of other halves would tell us to be much more careful than some kind of nonchalant, uh, ultra non-judgmentalism that just allows people to do anything they want with no fear of consequence. Because that's not a just world nor is it a just God in heaven. Well, thank you, Joseph, for a JST here that helps clarify things. The JST of this says, Judge not unrighteously that ye be not judged, but judge righteous judgment. And we can't help but make judgment calls left and right of what will I do and who will I speak with and how will I react in this situation. We're making judgment call. Every choice we make is a judgment. And so we are judging constantly and we can't avoid it. The key, though, is to judge righteously. And if it happens to be another person that we are judging, we better not judge unrighteously, which in many ways is to judge prematurely. Elder Oaks taught this from his legal judge judicial background. We're making judgment calls all the time, but we are not passing final judgment upon anyone. That's God's prerogative. So be patient as people move through chapter 5 and chapter 6. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Give them the benefit of time. If you remember our conversation last year in the Old Testament when we studied King Solomon and how wise he was, wise in judgment, and you had these two mothers that were fighting over the one uh, uh, living baby. Remember the detail we brought out? That it's always the story of his wisdom that amazes us there, that he could wisely judge who the true mother was. But we pointed out the fact that both of these women were prostitutes, were harlots which made this baby they were fighting over an illegitimate child that they'd given birth to in some house of ill repute. Yikes. And if King Solomon were judgmental instead of a, a wise judge, he probably would have said, cut them all in half and clean up the kingdom. Get them out of my sight. But he doesn't. He doesn't judge unrighteously. Instead, he judges righteous judgment. Another way to say that, he judges without becoming judgmental. And that's important.
we can choose wisely. We can make wise judgment calls, but we don't have to condemn people prematurely. Now, the other half of that phrase was, if you, whatever measure you meet will be measured unto you again. It's the same law of the harvest, but speaking of harvest, we're now harvesting the wheat or the grain or whatever we've got, and we've got our bushels full. We're going to sell it at the market uh, to get money to buy other things. Well, what measure are you using? I mean, I can say it's a cup, but if my cup's a little smaller than the official one, then I'm, I'm skimming a little extra off the top. If my weights are a little out of balance, if my scale isn't totally true, then I can, I can take advantage of other people and come out on top. Well, be careful, because that injustice on your part, well, you'll be judged harshly yourself by a God of perfect weights and balances. So, in fact, notice this from the Luke version of all of this. The same concept of me measuring out to you the way you've measured out to others. Luke 6, verse 38, he says, Give, and it shall be given unto you. And then the description. Good measure. Pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet, with all it shall be measured to you again. Just like we saw in Matthew. But talk about, this is more than, this is what we saw before. It's not mere reciprocity. It's true godly generosity. And you gave to others. Oh, good. Then God can give to you. And how will he do it? It's good measure. So this is fair. He's not, uh, this is not shrinkflation. Okay. Uh, we're giving the full amount. It's pressed down. So even more, can I squeeze in anything extra in there? It's shaken together, so no, kind of let the bubbles rise to the top and make sure we get, let it all settle to the bottom. It's still, beyond that, running over. So as hard as I pressed and as well as I shook, I still have more to give than you could possibly handle. This is the Malachi measure. Open the windows of heaven. There's not room for you to receive it. No wonder it runs over. And it's so big, you have to give it into your bosom. It's like when they're stacking up more and more and your hands are full and then your arms are full and then it's just pressing you back and you're just trying to get your chin over the top to kind of hold it all together in your bosom. That's the generosity of God. I don't know. I mean, I love the Malachi verse in Malachi 3 about windows of heaven, but I might like Luke 6:38 even more in a description of the generosity of God, his bounteous blessings. I remember the first time I went to a Mongolian barbecue and it was, you get one plate or one, one bowl and you can fill that bowl with as much as you want. And that is what we're going to take over to the chef to be again cooking it up. Well, as a cheapskate myself, I wanted to get as much as I possibly could. And I remember finding like they were these frozen pieces of meat. And if I put them around the edge of the bowl, it would extend the, circum the circumference of the bowl itself. As long as I counterweighted these frozen pieces of meat with the other noodles and things that were on the inside. It was this whole cantilever kind of civil engineering going on right there. Yeah, but it extended my, my bowl so that more would fit. And you keep piling it in and then you press it down and, and bring in more and see if you could do it a, a, maybe a second layer if you keep cantilevering things. Uh, we, we got our money's worth uh, as much as we possibly could. But if you thought we were creative in how much we could pack into a bowl, oh, the Lord is immeasurable in his blessings. More than we could, we could possibly hold on to.
But in context here, he's also suggesting we ought to treat other people with the same degree of generosity. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Don't judge them harshly, but judge righteous judgment. Be patient and compassionate and kind. Because, as he says in verse 3 through 5, we tend not to do that. We're only kind to ourselves. We're harsh with others. Notice this. Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye? And the mote there, from the Greek word, it could be a twig. It could be a straw. It could be a splinter. In fact, it could be just a tiny speck. That's all it is. The word could mean chaff, which I think is really interesting as we're separating wheat from chaff. And my brother, he's just got a tiny little piece of chaff stuck in his eye. It's... It's blurring his vision. But meanwhile, why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye? But considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? And by beam there, we're talking a massive log, a plank, a joist, a rafter, something that holds up your house. <laughs> this is huge. And it's in your eye. But you're not considering it. Luke's version, it says you don't perceive it. It's interesting. You, you, in Matthew, you know it's there, but you don't really think about it. In Luke's, you don't even know it's there. You are so, well, no wonder you're blind. You've been blinded by this beam in your eye. No wonder you're blind to the fact that you are so blinded. And yet still somehow you can see the speck in your brother's eye. There's humor in this. I mean, I, I picture Jesus trying to keep a straight face as he says this. Now he says, how wilt thou say to thy brother, oh, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. <laughs> thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. In the Luke version, it's not just cast it out, it's pull it out. So it's more gentle, it's more careful. And this is one of the most famous things that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount about the beam in your eye and the moat in, in your brother's. And yeah, it's comical. There's some humor here. And you can have some fun with it yourself. First time I taught this in seminary years ago, I bought a pair of glasses and a big piece of balsa wood. Balsa is light enough that you can have a lot of it without weighing other things down. And I took this big piece of balsa wood and broke off the end so it'd be kind of sharp edges on the, on the front end, like as if it was about to give a splinter to anything it touched and then taped it to a pair of glasses and then put it on. And it was like a foot-long beam sticking out of my eye. And to walk around the classroom offering assistance to students. To, oh, I think you got a little speck of dust in your eye. Let me help with that. And we just laughed at it. And who wouldn't? And yet we do that all the time. In fact, we usually do it because we feel so justified. Because there are specks. There are motes in other people's eyes. Granted, Jesus just admitted it. The question, or the point is not that, there's, that they have to be flawless. It's that you're in no condition to help their flaws because you've got bigger flaws yourself. And that's the irony here. Do, solve your own problems first. That's what the Lord is getting at. It's the order here, just like we saw at the end of chapter 6. Before you do that, do this. Seek the kingdom of heaven first. Those other things will be added. Clean up your own act, and then you'll be better prepared to help others do the same. Then shall you see clearly to cast out the moat. Because maybe it wasn't quite the moat you thought it was when you first came cavalierly in 
ready to solve everyone else's problems. If we can be more kind, more patient, more forgiving is what he's after here. Less judgmental. And being more careful in our own judgment of self to judge others through the lens, through the eye of our own weaknesses and sins. It's what Jesus will do later when he meets with the woman taken in adultery. And he does not deny the mote that is in her eye. In fact, she's got a beam and it's still sticky in there, right? Caught in the very act. And so what does he say to do to those that are ready to, to burn her by that beam? Check your own eyesight first. Judge her, fine, but judge her through the lens of your own self-judgment. And if you have no motes within you, let alone beams, then yeah, you'll be able to see clearly how to remove a moat from someone else's eye without doing them more harm than good. Well, nobody stuck around for that operation. They recognized their own beams and walked away condemned by their own conscience. So the Lord asks of us, judge others in light of your own self-judgment. And that's not to excuse them in order to excuse yourself. Oh, I'm definitely going to be merciful to them. So God is merciful to me. Now that's still self-serving. But it's recognizing the humanity in them as God recognizes the humanity in us. He did condescend to reach that level of comprehension. By the way, speaking of comprehension, I worry sometimes... If we don't even see our, on the one hand, this is pride, that you're blind to your own beam. But I worry sometimes if we have an opposite problem. And if we're the type that is so self-deprecating and, and is over-anxious about their own sins, and that's all they can think about, my worry is that you actually might just have a moat in your eye. But from close distance in your perspective, it sure seems like a beam to you. Be careful with that one too. Sometimes it does require outside vision to be able to say to you either what you are underestimating is a far larger problem that needs to be taken care of or the opposite. What you are blowing out of proportion, what you're dealing with right there, actually it's not a beam, it's just a moat. The challenge is when you have a moat that uh, up this close, even tiny things from a distance can cover your entire line of sight if you bring it too close to the eye. Remember what the Lord was teaching back in chapter 6, that the eye, the light, the eye is the light of the body, it's the lamp. And if your eye is full of light, then your body will be full of light. But if your whole perspective is skewed, then darkness will prevail pretty much everywhere else. You've got to be careful with that. So please see by the light of the world. In fact, in the Luke version of this, this is Luke chapter 6, verse 39 and 40. Right before talking about motes and beams, he prefaces it by saying this. He spake a parable unto them, can the blind lead the blind? How's that for motes and beams? Shall they not both fall into the ditch? The disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. So let's work toward that kind of perfection in Christ. He is the light of the world. He'll give you the light whereby you can see. Truly see others' moats. Truly see your own. Others, see other, others' beams and your own and keep things in proper perspective. Don't let the blind lead the blind here. See through the light of the world. 
He then says in verse 6, kind of different, to ch changing directions here somewhat. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Now, wait a minute. I thought you just said, don't judge so you don't get judged yourself. And now you're, you're judging people by calling them dogs and pigs? I'm asking you to judge righteous judgment. Okay? Don't get judgmental. Don't pass final judgment and assume that this, this dog can never change or this swine will never grow up. But you need to be cautious and careful and wise. Wise judgment, righteous judgment, that you don't take holy things and throw them out there for dogs to rip apart or for swine to uproot as they're digging around in the, in the dirt or wallowing in the mire. Be careful here. Now, what's interesting about this is the, the word choice he uses, dogs and pigs. Okay? Swine were unclean animals to the Jews. I think we know that. What we might not, might not know is that dogs, which to us is this wonderful house pet, was hardly ever that in the ancient world. Dogs were often seen more as, as scavengers that are just out there roaming in packs, ready to just eat whatever they can find. And so think about what the Lord is hinting at here when he warns us against sharing holy things, even pearls of great price, to dogs and to swine that wouldn't know what to do with them. In fact, less than, than neutral, it becomes a negative for them. They don't just, I mean, they turn around and rend you. Think about that language. There's something about pearls that really tick off pigs. You can't stand these things. There's something about your holy things that a dog just cannot stand. And so they turn around and they start ripping you apart. They rend you not just the thing that you were offering. Now think about what Jesus is saying here as we are trying to be careful in our judgment. We give everyone the benefit of the doubt, but when they prove themselves to be dogs or swine when it comes to spiritual things, once, you, once they make that clear, then you no longer need to continue, offer, to, continue to offer them holy things and pearls of great price because it's not doing them any good. In fact, it will end up doing you harm because they get more and more angry by it. Think about those who almost want to scavenge on your spirituality. There's a dog that is trying to rip you apart, spiritually speaking. Think about the swine out there that only wants to dig up dirt on people in church history, for example, or are wallowing around in the mire that doesn't do anybody much good. I mean, have you ever had a conversation with someone that you can tell does not have an open mind or an open heart or an honest approach to these things? And does it come to a point where it's unwise of us to continue to share the gospel with them? It's like, nope. All they're doing is looking for little things to pick at. They're, all they're doing is trying to make me an offender for a word. At some point, isn't that what the priests of Noah were doing to Abinadi? Isn't that what scribes and Pharisees would often do to Jesus? 
in Elder Hales' great talk, Christian Courage, he said at some points Jesus wouldn't even answer people, his attackers a word. And they would pester him and he just wouldn't say anything. He refused to cast pearls before swine. He refused to give holy things to the dogs. And I worry sometimes in our kindness, we open ourselves to hurt because the person is not in a position to accept with a sincere heart and an open mind what we're trying to give. I see that in conversations I have with some ex-Latter-day Saints. Not all. Some are open and kind and others are, they're just waiting for you to say something they can grab, they can grab a hold of. They're going to take that pearl and <laughs> knock you upside the head with it. They will scavenge on, this, on, on your soul itself. Often I've ended a conversation with an anti-Mormon with this question. I love your questions, uh, and I'm happy to answer any that you are asking in sincerity. But my worry is, are you asking questions because you want answers, or are you asking questions because you want me to have questions? If it's the first, I can do this all day. This is fun for me. I, I enjoy it. And there are answers to be found. But if you're just trying to find ways to try to get me to question things, that's unnecessary because I don't have those questions. I've resolved them in my mind. So I guess our conversation's done. And they usually admit, yeah, you're right. It was kind of done before it started. I was just working on a different angle. You understand what I'm saying? If we can be okay then to recognize, not to pass, like I said, final judgment that you're permanently a dog and you'll never be more than a swine. No, pigs can change and dogs can grow up as well. We just need to be more discerning with our testimonies of truth and make sure that we're giving them to people who might actually have an opportunity to accept it in the spirit that it's given. Now there's a JST for that too, which says this, Go ye into the world, saying unto all, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come nigh unto you. So yes, that's, that's our goal, first and foremost, is we're going out to cry repentance. We are coming with hands full of pearls and all the holy things we could offer a waiting world. Go out and share it. But, he goes on, The mysteries of the kingdom ye shall keep within yourselves. For it is not meet to give that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls unto swine, lest they trample them under their feet. And then he continues to clarify, For the world cannot receive that which ye, yourselves, are not able to bear. Wherefore ye shall not give your pearls unto them, lest they turn again and rend you. Interesting there. That these are, is there a little piece of pig in me? Am I still a little bit of a dog in my discipleship? Are there things that I don't even understand? That's what he says. Ye yourselves are not able to bear all these mysteries of the kingdom. That's why I give you stories and symbols and parables and I just hope that you continue to learn line upon line, precept upon precept. I'm not trying to condemn you by things you don't yet understand. Again, we see that in the way the temple endowment is being presented currently. I want you to understand, so I'll make these mysteries a little less mysterious for you. But if even we need time and patience to grow up in God, then certainly others do too. Let's give them that and not try to force feed them on pearls that they don't recognize as being of great price. And let's be a little more cautious in who we're sharing the mysteries of God with. Then again, if, if they're open and sincere, 
then cry repentance. If we're open and sincere, then ask God to better understand those mysteries, and he will make them known unto us. That's what he says in the next two verses. Verse 7 and 8, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh, receiveth. He that seeketh, findeth. To him that knocketh, it shall be opened. Now this only works in English, but if you were to take those three verbs and line them up, ask, seek, knock, what's the acronym? A for ask and S for seek and K for knock. It spells out ask. It's like the Lord can't make this any more clear. Let me literally spell it out to you. If you want to understand the mysteries, if you want to know more than you do, if you want to navigate a, a world of, that combines faith and doubt and darkness and light and who do I trust and I don't even know, then come, ask. You can, and I'll answer you. Sometimes people have attacked, sometimes those who have left the church have complained saying, oh, the questions just aren't welcome in the church. I actually just watched the video of someone who'd left the church and he gave us his reasons why. I would never want to belong to an organization that doesn't let you ask, doesn't let you think, and doesn't let you talk. And I thought, what organization are you talking about? My whole life I have felt okay and able and welcome in asking and thinking and talking. And I try to offer the same and assure my students of the same thing. My class, you can ask anything and you can think anything and you can talk about anything. Let's, in fact, let's talk about it right here so we can understand together what the Lord would have us know. Some have said, no, no, the church just isn't a welcome place for questions. Sometimes it's just a matter of who do we ask them of? Or what's the right venue? Or what's our approach in asking them? Am I trying to rend people with my questions? Or am I seeking truth sincerely? But anyway, when often people will respond to that saying, what do you mean you can't ask questions? The restoration began with a question. <laughs> the first vision came by way of a question. Most of the revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants came by way of answers to questions. So I do love that response. But I don't think it's completely accurate. Although there may be some truth in saying the restoration began with a question, more technically I would say the restoration began with the assurance that questions were welcome. Because that's Joseph's experience with James 1.5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Or as Jesus says here, if you lack wisdom, ask. And you'll, and you'll be answered. Seek, you'll find. Knock, it will be open unto you. I'm spelling it out. You can talk to me. You will not be upbraided. I'll give unto you liberally. The answer will come if you'll come and ask. That's the kind of assurance Joseph needed. That's the way he said it in Joseph Smith history. If that's true, then maybe I might venture. I might risk it. I might admit my ignorance if God will replace it with knowledge which he did, which he does, as promised. In the JST of this, then said the disciples unto him, they will say unto us, we ourselves are righteous, and need not that any man should teach us. God, we know, heard Moses and some of the prophets, but us he will not hear. And they will say, we have the law for our salvation, and that is sufficient for us. Now, there seem to be three excuses rolled into one there. Excuses as to why I would never bring myself to ask God for further light and knowledge. No, I, 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 here's the reasons. Number one, we ourselves are righteous. We don't need anybody to teach us. 
How's that for self-sufficiency? How's that for pride? I don't need any help. Second option. Well, yeah, he listens to Moses and answers people like that. I mean, not even all the prophets are on that level, but some of them were. I certainly, I'm not. Hmm. So he won't answer you because you don't think you're worthy or able to receive a response. And then the third, we've got the law. That's enough to save us. It's sufficient for us. So I don't need anything else. It's kind of like what the first one, but the first one is more like we are sufficient. I don't need help. The third is more, it is sufficient. What I already have is enough for me. It's kind of the, a Bible, a Bible, we have a Bible, we don't need another Bible. Ah, it's tragic. Because if those are your responses, then those are self-fulfilling prophecies. If you don't need help and therefore don't ask for any, then God is bound because you won't allow him to come to your rescue. If you feel like God only speaks to certain people and that's why you won't ask, well, then you'll have the things that he said to those certain people, but you could have had what he would have said to you. And if you think that what you have is already all sufficient, then prepare to receive no more. In fact, prepare to lose what you have. That's the Lord's promise. Those who think they have enough, it will be taken away even that which they have. That's 2 Nephi 28. There's one more instance of JST here, uh, if you keep reading. Jesus' response to those concerns, those three excuses people come up with, he answered and said unto his disciples, Thus shall ye say unto them. Okay, fine. You don't think I'll answer? Listen to this. What man among you, having a son, and he shall be standing out, and shall say, Father, open thy house, that I may come in and sup with thee? What kind of lousy father would not say, Come in, my son? For mine is thine, and thine is mine. Now, Jesus is going to build on that with the next passage, but stop here for a second with this JST. The Father really does want to bring us into his kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He wants that for us. So here's this son asking a father, please, can I come in? Can I come home? If I'm your son, it's my home too. Uh-huh, yes. Go with that, children of God. I want to sup with thee. And he is laying out the banquet table with bread of life and living water and fruit sweeter than anything you've ever eaten. What will such a loving father say to his son? Come in. Come in, my son. This is relational. For mine is thine. I'm trying to give you all that I have. Oh, and thine is mine. <laughs> Generosity goes both ways. There's consecration for you. But we're, this is all the same family. It's your house too. My, my stuff is your stuff. Come in and let's eat together. A feast within the family. Now, with that JST in mind, then go back to the King James and look at 9 through 11. Same idea is being taught here. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? Those are obvious rhetorical questions. And the obvious answer is absolutely not. What kind of a lousy dad would give a hungry child a stone to eat? Or a serpent to bite him instead of a fish to bite into? So what's the Lord say? Now that they've answered their own question. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good gifts to them that ask him? Just follow the analogy. 
if man is to son as father is to fill in the blank, them that ask him, you are all sons and daughters of God. And he loves you and wants to be generous with you. So come and ask, come and seek, come and knock. He'll leave with hands so full, he'll have to put it in your bosom and it'll still be spilling over. That's how generous God is, not only with his gifts, but with his light and knowledge, with his holy things, with his pearls. Ask Joseph Smith about the mighty Missouri River and <laughs> the potential of man to turn it upstream with his puny arm. That's the analogy Joseph Smith used for God's desire to pour down revelation upon the heads of the Latter-day Saints. That's how generous and good he is. He is a loving father. And if even an unloving father is good enough to come through for his kids, then imagine, imagine the loving father you and I have if we'll simply come and ask him. Have that faith in him that he'll come through. By the way, evil is too strong of a word there. If you being evil, wow, is, God, is Christ really calling them that? The word itself, yes, can mean evil, but can also mean pressed down by labor. It can mean overworked. It can mean annoyed. And does that describe us sometimes, especially as parents? <laughs> Do we sometimes feel pressed down by our labor? and overworked and underpaid and just stressed by a million things. We're, we, we haven't yet taken no thought concerning. We're overworried. But even in the midst of all of that stress, if one of our own children comes and asks us humbly for our help, even in the midst of all of our stresses, we typically will put all that work on hold to meet our child's need. Even if we, if we are pressed down by worries. Their worries seem to crowd out ours. And we're just moved to compassion because we love our kids. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to redeem us, to teach us, to show us the way. And so if we'll simply have that faith in him, the bread of life will come forth in fact, notice the word he used, bread and stone. Huh. Didn't we just see that back in Matthew chapter 4 about the temptations of Jesus? Something about bread and something about a stone. Here he adds fish and serpent as well. But think about what's happening here. Stay on the literal plane first. If a child comes and is hungry, mom, dad, can I have bread? Can I have some fish? I don't know of any kid that would ask for that in our day, but okay. Swedish fish, maybe. Uh, I'm hungry. Okay, if a child was hungry, what, would, what good would a stone do them? Absolutely none. There's no calories there, okay? So that is a worthless gift. Meanwhile, if someone asks for food and you give them a serpent, a living one that's ready to bear, rear up and sink their fangs into them, then that's, worth, that's worse than worthless. That's harmful. And I think tragically sometimes when God doesn't give us what we want, We've been begging for a specific blessing instead of simply saying, God, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And thy be the power and thy be the glory, thy be the kingdom. Instead, we have specific demands and here's the to-do list and here's the wish list and here's what we, what we need. When it's that 
kind of, I want this specific kind of bread and this particular fish and it better not be undercooked and it better not smell fishy or taste fishy. And, and sometimes the Lord responds instead with a, what seems like a stone or seems like a serpent. And we accuse God of being an evil father, far worse than any of us. Because I would, I would come through for my child. I know you would. He knows you would too. But would you always do exactly what the child wants? Because what if the child doesn't know what's best for that child? What if extra bread is going to cause a problem? What if there's a fish allergy they didn't know about? <laughs> what if it's time for that child to learn to work and earn some daily bread of his own? And so a true loving parent thinks not both of thinks not only of short-term hunger but also long-term need and tries to balance that as best as they can god is even wiser than we so judge righteous judgment as far as what god is giving and the kind of and trust the righteous judgment of god as well he's not judging unrighteously in fact, he's not giving you worthless gifts and he's certainly not giving you something that's harmful, even when it hurts. The trials we face are not serpents and our unanswered prayers are not mere stones that Jesus is throwing at us. I worry that we've reversed the temptation of Christ. And Satan said to him, take these stones and turn them into bread. And to us, he says, take this bread and turn it into stone. Take the bread of God. And if it didn't happen to be the kind you wanted, you asked for wonder bread and he gave you rye. If, the, if it's kind of crusty on the outside and hard to get into to find the real nourishment, if it's not the bread that you asked for, don't call it a stone. It's the bread that you needed and the bread that God decided to provide. I hope that we can be as courageous as Christ and as wise and discerning as he was to avoid that first temptation. He refused to turn stones into bread. We must refuse to perceive the Lord's bread as some kind of stone. It isn't. In verse 12, he says, Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. There's the Matthew version of the golden rule. Do your very best by other people. And that's going to include long-term, not just short-term. Wouldn't you want someone to point out something in your blind spot? so that you can correct it before it becomes a bigger problem? Wouldn't you want someone to help you become more, more than a dog or a swine and help you truly grow up so you can learn some things from God? Wouldn't you want someone to say no if what you're asking for is going to do you damage? I've lived long enough and been unwise enough to look back on certain things I'd have been hoping for and been so relieved that they never came. I have offered this prayer repeatedly to God. Thank you for not listening to me. At, I wasn't offering that prayer at the, at the time. I was wondering about this rock. I was scared of that serpent. But looking back, it was just the bread that I needed.
and he did me good. He did what he knew I would need. He's asking me to do the same for other people. And whatever I would want from them, do it for them. In fact, do it first. It's not, not reciprocation. This is generosity. And best of all, that's the law and the prophets. This is not something new I'm giving you. Love God, that's already there in Deuteronomy. Love neighbor, that's already there in Leviticus. Golden rule, it's everywhere. All the law, all the prophets are meant to help us get along together. <laughs> to just come together as brothers, sisters, because that's what we are. In verse 13 and 14, he says this, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. That's the sad news. This wide gate, this broad way. By the way, broad can also mean spacious, as in the great and spacious building. Wide can also mean flat, as in spreading something out flat. So this is not God's upward climb. You can just kind of coast along. It's all fine. It's all good. No effort needed. No direction since the, the way is so wide. But that's not the way of the Lord, who is the way, the truth, and the life. What's his way instead? He says it. Straight is the gate. Narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. By the way, straight there is A-I-T, not A-I-G-H-T. Straight as in not crooked. That's not what he's suggesting here. You'll see that elsewhere. But here, straight as in narrow. In some ways, it's, he's being redundant. That the way is straight, kind of like the Strait of Gibraltar or the Bering Strait. It's this narrow uh, piece of, of water in between two encroaching pieces of land. And that's the kind of path that we are asked to enter. The straight one, the narrow one. So straight here can mean small. Narrow can actually mean compressed, as if by pressure, some kind of affliction. And sometimes the path does feel that way. Instead of being broad and level and easygoing, sometimes the way does feel like it's pressing in upon us, that it's oh, a burden to bear, but it's one that is preparing us to be able to to carry the weight of glory that God is trying to give us. To borrow from Robert Frost, there is a path less traveled by. Few there be that find it, right? But that path has made all the difference. It certainly is meant to for us. He then says in verse 15 and 16, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Again, a need to judge righteous judgment so you can look past surface level spirituality and say, well, they look pretty sheep-like to me. Oh, careful. Look beyond. Look deeper. And inward there's a ravening wolf. Notice when he said, beware of false prophets. We get this verse thrown into our face all the time because we believe in prophets. But if the Lord is saying, beware of false prophets, doesn't that suggest that there are true just because there are wolves in sheep's clothing doesn't mean there's no such thing as sheep or such a thing as good shepherds. There's reality, too. There's truth as well as falsehood. It takes us, it takes a discerning eye to, to distinguish. And what are we supposed to be looking at with that discerning eye? Their fruit. Ye shall know them by their fruits, he said. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Luke puts that as, would you gather a grape from a bramble bush? 
And of course, the answer to that is no. So look at their fruits. And are these fruits meat for repentance, to borrow John the Baptist's language? Or is the axe laid at the root of the tree, ready to chop? Because there's nothing good coming from this. Those that are struggling in their faith, what are the fruits of the restoration? Those of you that are struggling in your own, I don't know, do I trust this voice or that voice? There are so many, call them prophets, if you will, whether those are prophets or pundits or, or podcasters, so many voices left and right saying, oh, but this is right, or no, but that's wrong, and fine. By their fruits you shall know them. What fruits do you see? And are those fruits meet for repentance? By listening to them, do they make you want to become a better person or a worse one? How do they live their own lives? What are their goals or their desires? What are they trying to build or tear down? There's so much discernment that needs to take place for all of us because there's so many voices, but please look for fruits and you'll start to see. And then there's one other thing I would add based on the specific things Jesus mentioned. He's basically saying that this is the law of the harvest all over again. You'll know what kind of... When you look at a seed, it's really hard to tell what it is. That's why Alma asks us to experiment on us, right? Or on it. But once it begins to grow, oh, now if it's a tree, I might be able to tell what kind of tree it is by its leaves, but usually I wait for its fruit to come. And then I can tell, oh, apple or orange or pear or whatever. The ones that Jesus specifically mentions here is, if you can't tell what it is, then let it grow, because if it's a grape, then yeah, that's a grapevine. It's not a mere thorn. And if it's a fig, then it's not growing out of a thistle. You can't grow figs out of thistles. You can't get grapes out of thorns. And yet I could picture Jesus with a little smile saying, well, I know you can't, but I can't. And not to diminish from the lesson he's teaching there, but think about this symbolically. Because Jesus does take the thorns that grow from the fall. This is what, it tipped me off when I realized he was talking about thorns and thistles. And then the thought came, wait, that's the result of the fall. That thorns and thistles would this fallen world breed. But what does Jesus do with the fall? He turns it into the atonement. So could you gather grapes from thorns? Jesus does. He takes thorns and actually crowns himself with it and then offers the sacramental wine of his atoning blood. Jesus does take grapes out of thorns. And figs from thistles? Thistles, there's more evidence of the fall. But figs are often used by the Lord as a symbol for the second coming because figs are a great sign of the time. What season are we in? And so the glory of Christ's second coming to make all wrong things right, to bring beauty from ashes, to bring figs from thistles, he does that too. Think about the beautiful line in Joy to the World. One of the verses says this, No more will sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He'll come and make the blessings flow far as the curse was found. That curse was thorns and thistles. The blessing that will come and flow just as far as the fall did, that's the Lord's promise.
That's the Lord's goodness. That's his grapes and his figs. Figs to feast on. He then says in verse 17 to 20, back to the original analogy. Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit. But a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. That's just not how it works. You can't get one thing out of something else. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I told you the axe was laid at the root of the tree. Wherefore, let me say it again, by their fruits ye shall know them. So again, think about that. What are the fruits of a Christ-like life? Versus what are the fruits of a worldly one? No man can serve two masters. You're going to start seeing which, is it God or is it mammon? Which nursery did you get that tree from? What kind of fruit will it offer? And part of the, the real way to see that, because here's the challenge. Is it really that simple? Am I only one kind of fruit? Because sadly, when I look at my own fruits, some are good and some are not so good. So what kind of a tree am I? In a real tree, it's going to be good or bad, but in a real human, we're a messy mix of both. So think of it this way. Maybe it's quantity. By and large, what do you produce more often? Or more, more, more accurately, down deep, what do you want to be producing? What is your hope? Yeah, you'll, we all fall short of expectation, but down deep, what do you want? Because down deep is what he's after. Look at things, look at the heart of the person. And in the Luke version of this, this is chapter 6, verse 45, the Lord says in the midst of this same context, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaketh. This reminds me of what he said earlier about the eye. And is the eye light or is it darkness? Down deep, the core, the lens whereby you see the world. Or in this case, the heart. Where are your treasures? On earth, where moth and rust corrupts? Or in heaven, where thieves cannot break through or steal? Are you God or mammon? Which are you? And if down deep... Not just the outward acts, but the inward attributes that the Lord's been working on through those antitheses and raising the bar back in chapter 5. What do you want most? In some of the anti-Mormonism that I work through, people will say, quit calling this anti-Mormonism. It's just plain old Mormonism. I'm like, well, you're not. you've decontextualized a lot of your so-called history and you're telling half-truths instead of full-truths. I, I, I get it. I understand what you're saying, that, that's true, but I also understand what you're not saying, which would have made it fully true. So quit saying that this is not anti-Mormon just because you can point to something on the church website that this, actual, this thing actually happened. Anti-Mormonism can be found in approach. It can be found in goal. It can be found in attitude. Two people can use the same materials to make two very different things. And so what's your goal here? And is your heart and its treasure good or evil? That's going to help me determine what kind of fruit is coming forth. Now, the last few verses then, he says an interesting thing. It starts in verse 21. And the Lord says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. 
You see, words like Lord, Lord are still just outward, external. But are you doing the will? Now we're getting a little deeper here. Now we're getting into the treasures of the heart, the light of the eye. So what are we going to do about that? How can we tell? There's a JST of this, by the way, where it says, He that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Joseph then adds, For the day soon cometh that men shall come before me to judgment to be judged according to their works. And what's this whole chapter been about? Judgment. Judge not that ye be not judged. I mean, judge not unrighteously that ye be not judged. But please, by all means, judge righteous judgment. God will. And he will hold us accountable for what things we've said or left unsaid, what we've done or haven't done. And just talking the talk will be insufficient on the day of final judgment. Because by then, oh, we know what kind of tree you were. We knew if it was sheep or just sheep's clothing. We know what you did with pearls and holy things. And it's all becoming clear. So no matter what words you used, like Lord, Lord, you didn't, you didn't do anything based on that. This is King Benjamin saying, if you believe these things, see that you do them. This is James saying that faith without works is dead. So are you anxiously engaged in these things? It's not enough to talk the talk. You got to walk the walk. The, the Luke version of this, by the way, the way he says it there, and why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Why would you do that? I grew up in the days of uh, Steve Young's popularity on the 49ers, and I would sometimes see people and back in California wearing number eight San Francisco 49ers jerseys with a cigarette in their hand. And I always laugh going, oh, you may wear Steve's name, but he would never join you in a cigarette. You might say things, but if you talk the talk, if you call me Lord, Lord, why aren't you acting like I'm your Lord and your master? You, which one do you love? Which one do you hate? Which one do you hold to? Which one do you despise? You've got to do what I say. To which some would say, fine, then I will. I'll do what you say. I'll call you Lord and I'll act like you're my master. But notice verse 22 and 23. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? I mean, there's a work, right? And in thy name have cast out devils, another work. And in thy name done many wonderful works. I mean, I can't spell it out more clearly than that. And notice all of those were done in thy name. So it's not just I'm paying you lip service. I'm doing all this stuff in your name. And yet, what's the Lord say to them? Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now that's hard. What, wait, uh, what, you, you never knew me? Work iniquity? No, I did wonderful works and I did them in your name. I have been trying to put my money where my mouth is. I've been trying to do what I say because I don't want to be called a hypocrite. Okay, good. You're progressing. You're better off than what I said, talked about in verse 21. Ah, but not yet as good as you need to be. Because it's still, it's obedience, that's good. But is it blind obedience? You know my name and call me by it, but do you know the person behind the name? Because when it says here, I never knew you, the JST reverses it. Ye never knew me. Which tells us it's not enough to know what's right 
or even to do what's right if you haven't come to know personally the source of that right. Again, we're back to saber versus conocer in Spanish. Not enough to know facts and information. You need to be personally acquainted with the Lord, personal relationships, personal covenant with Him. That's what we're after. That's what He's after. And if we haven't come to know Him through all of this saying and all of this doing, then what were we saying and what were we doing it for? I thought about this in terms of my own students. Uh, and as we study together for a full semester, at the end we have a final exam. And I test them on their knowledge from what, we, what we've gained in the course. But can you imagine if for the final exam, instead of asking them about all the stuff we learned, what if all the questions were about me as a teacher and about their fellow students? Have you truly come to know in the vertical and horizontal dimensions. Now again, not me, who cares about me? You don't need to know anything about me. But if God's the teacher, what if the end were not, the, the final exam were not about what did I do on this, in this moment, but rather what should you do in such and such a moment if you're going to follow the example that I've set for you? Do you know me well enough to know what I would do in any circumstance? Because your circumstances may look different than the ones that we see in Scripture. You've got different issues that you're facing and different trials to overcome, different temptations, but the same three basic types. Do we know Christ well enough to know the answer to that question we seem to throw around so often? What would Jesus do? That's not just book smarts. It's not even just street smarts or synagogue smarts. It's being personally acquainted with him and knowing exactly how he'd respond in a, in a given circumstance. No wonder Jesus himself defines life eternal as knowing God and knowing him. So verse 24 and 25, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, which I would add, with an eye to truly knowing the Savior as a result, if you do that, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And in fact, not just any old rock, but the rock of the Redeemer. Built on him. Firmly founded in him. What happens if, if, if we are? The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon that house. And it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. Notice it's a house that's being built, not some temporary shelter. This is not a tent we're pitching. This is not a beach umbrella we're setting up in the sand. This is the place we want to live our lives, focus our faith, found it in Him. This is our permanent residence. Do we want to stay for good? If not, then I guess you can settle for the next, 26 and 27, because this is where you put beach umbrellas. This is where you might want to pitch a tent. Everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man. By the way, the Greek word there, translated foolish, is moros. And that's where we get the English word moron. So do we want to be a moron here? Which built his house upon the sand. Great place for beach umbrellas. But when the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house, it fell and great was the fall of it. That last phrase, by the way, is found in the Book of Mormon too, describing what? The great and spacious building, the broad way, 
the wide path. It's so easy. I laugh sometimes when I saw my sons go on, on snow camp, campouts in Utah as Boy Scouts when they were young, and I thought, I'm so glad I grew up in Southern California. We had beach campouts. That's pretty easy. Not every Eagle Scout is created equal, I suppose. And mine was a, a, a pretty broad way, comparatively speaking. Well, here we are in the sand, fine for easy times, but rain and flood and wind, you got nothing to protect you. There's no permanent shelter here. And notice the wind and the flood and the rain came on everyone. Just because you've got a house doesn't mean that you're not going to face any storms of life. They're going to come no matter what. The question is, how will we endure them? Will we endure them well? One other thing to say about that word foolish, it literally means dull or flat. That's why a moron is just kind of dull-witted, okay? But flat in terms of not having a good edge to it. And to think about tools you would need to build your house. If your pickaxe is too dull, too flat of an edge to dig into the rock to build your foundation, if your axe isn't sharp enough at its edge to cut down good trees, to build yourself a solid structure, then no wonder you're sim simply sitting, setting up camp on a beach somewhere. You better beware of the storm then. In the Luke version, by the way, the storm is described as in more intense terms than in Matthew. It talks about the wind blowing vehemently. And it says that the, the, the house falls immediately. That it's not even some slow decline. That you were not prepared in any way to face whatever was coming. Oh, that, that's the danger of these shallow foundations or complete lack of foundation that we sometimes find, our, find ourselves in. Compare that to the great verse that we're all familiar with. Helaman 5 verse 12. And now my sons, Helaman says to Nephi and Lehi, remember, remember that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that you must build your foundation. That when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, how's that for a vehement? Yea, his shafts in the whirlwind. Yea, when all his hail and his mighty storm shall beat upon you. And those weren't ifs, those were whens. No matter where you're built, it will come. But notice the promise, if you're well built on the solid rock, it shall have no power over you to drag you down to the gulf of misery and endless woe. And why are you safe from that? By the way, gulfs are usually on shorelines by the beach. They're on the sand. But you're not going to be dragged there because of the rock upon which you are built, which is a sure foundation. A foundation whereon, if men build, they cannot fall. They can't. It's not possible. Because of the rock of the Redeemer that is beneath you. But not just connected. We have to be firmly founded in Him. It's not just kind of resting on the rock. In fact, in the Luke version of all of this, He adds a detail that I absolutely love. This is Luke 6, verse 48. Speaking of the wise man, he is like a man which built an house and digged deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the floods arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. Now, of course, I love that verb, shake, since I care so much to help us all become unshaken. But what led to that unshakenness? It was the depth of the foundation. 
we are so deeply rooted in Christ. That's the tree of life, roots deep. Okay, This is the foundation in the stone. You are digging deep to find the rock, and best of all, digging into the rock so that you, there's nothing that can blow you off of it. If you've ever seen home construction, there is a deep foundation. Typically, there are bolts that they sink into the cement before it even dries. And they stick up so that then as you frame things and start putting the wood on, you can bolt the wood down to the foundation, which is then founded in the rock. That house is going nowhere. If you've seen homes or videos of beach houses that are there at the edge of a cliff, and the cliff is sand. It's just beach after all. When the, enough rain, enough wind comes and there's a mudslide, a landslide, and the house slides down right along with it, no rock there. But imagine someone building on a rock but not being connected to it. And it's, well, I'm not going to fall through anything. Okay, but if the storm is vehement enough, can you get blown off it? You still got problems there. So what is Jesus asking of us? Find the rock, dig deep, and connect yourself to me. If you do, there is no crumbling below because nothing is below me. I've descended below all things. Again, that's why I love that phrase, hitting rock bottom. He's still beneath you. But also being blown off by vehement winds. There's no off once you've fully embedded yourself in Christ and his gospel. The way he described himself to Enoch in Moses chapter 7, listen to these self-titles. I am Messiah, the King of Zion, the rock of heaven. And how does he describe that rock? which is broad as eternity. There's no falling off the edge. There's no end to this Alpha and Omega. So build on him. I've said this before to people that are struggling in their faith. If you feel that there are cracks in your foundation, then dig deep to find how far they go. If it requires you to uproot Previous understandings, if you, like the original Salt Lake Temple Foundation, is not going to support a granite structure that will live through the millennium, then it's worth it to start over. It's worth it to start digging down, and I never really had a testimony of that, or that I was just paying lip service to, or this I never really came to understand because I was afraid to ask. I thought I knew, or I thought I wasn't worthy, or I thought I knew enough. I'm at a point where I need to understand better. Then come, ask, seek, knock. Dig deep. Start over if you need to, but come to know God first and foremost. Come to know that he cares for you and cares when we aren't doing what we should. And so he sent his son to heal us from our sins and to overcome death on our behalf. If I've built on that foundation, of Father and Son, confirmed by the Spirit himself, then nothing can blow me away from my, from my Christianity, from my relationship with Father and Son. And so how does he end? He's actually ended already. He's done with this sermon, at least as we see it in Matthew. 
he's leaving us to decide for ourselves if we will be foolish or wise. What we'll do with this long process that he's been teaching us. Now that it's done, everyone else is just sitting there in the silence wondering, what, what will I do with all of this? What chapter am I in? What next steps will I take? And then our narrator, Matthew, gives us these two final verses, 28 and 29. It came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. We talked about that idea when we saw it in a Luke verse and a, Ma and a Mark verse earlier. But here he is, as usual, teaching different things in different ways. Teaching doctrine differently. Because he had authority. This was him, not as the scribes. Remember when we talked about that? A scribal religion, all they have is text. So of course they're scribes, the written word. And all they're going to do is find chapter verse and pull out proof text and stick it in front of your face and say, nope, the Bible says. How any scribe can do that. But who's interpreting the Bible? Who says what the Bible says? It has to come from a higher source. And Jesus is that source. He doesn't have to quote chapter and verse from the word of God because he is the word made flesh. He doesn't have to proof text. He can simply prophesy. And by prophesy, I mean not just foretell, but forth tell. This is how it works. And what Jesus has just given us is exactly that. This is how it works. The Sermon on the Mount is how life at its best is meant to go. Blessed are those that begin to climb the ladder to come unto Christ. Blessed are those who can clear a raised bar as the Lord continues to help us jump higher and higher in Him. Blessed are those that not only purify their actions, but purify their attitudes, and then purify their motives all along the way. And blessed are those who are patient and kind, judging without being judgmental toward the rest of us that are still struggling along the ascent. I know many of my motes and plenty of my beams, and I'm grateful for a merciful God who's patient with me. I'm grateful for the rock that's beneath me, and I pray that I keep digging deeper, that I might remain unshaken in my faith in Him. The, more, the longer I live and the more I face, the more grateful I am for the teachings and example of Jesus Christ. I'm grateful for the authority with which He spoke, and I'm grateful for the fruit that He lets me feast upon. It's by those fruits I have come to know him. And by those fruits I have come to know the fullness of his gospel and its truthfulness. I testify of it. And I extend to all of us the Savior's invitation to continue climbing the mount every step of his sermon. Perfection in Christ still pending. But wise men and wise women all will continue the climb.